0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: Good morning, friends. Happy Monday to you. Hope uh, all is well uh, as you start your new week. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered. We have been working nonstop. Well, with a few stops and uh, doing what we can to get ready to give you the latest, the greatest information. So much we'll be talking about today, including on the docket, raising anxiety-resistant children. Uh, Is that possible? We will have a a counselor joining us to talk about uh, some of their tricks, their tricks of the trade for how to get your kids to, to be able to manage their anxiety. Not an easy thing. For really any of us, so we'll talk about that. Uh, we've got a lot to cover as far as headlines going on. Um, President Trump still <laughs> tweeting and and uh, and really amping up some of the tweets now. Um, as with McCabe, the f the ex FBI as deputy director who he fired last weekend or before the weekend. That's creating some some chaos. A lot of people are speaking out.
3: Twenty six hours. He was fired twenty six hours before he hit his retirement.
2: Yeah. And now, and now you've got... Uh, and he's
3: been. it's been known that he's stepping down at this point right. for quite a while. I, I'm out of here. I'm, so I'll walk away. So this was all timed. Right. right.
2: we are do it right on that Friday before you're going to retire tomorrow. You're not going to get your pension. So even like uh, Mark, Marco Rubio was saying, you know, you probably ought to wait. You should have waited. I mean, just let him through. Let him get to retirement. It's a jerk move. Then when they release the inspector general's report that may have said he did inappropriate things... Then you could do then, something Then there. you do something. And you go back and you take away his pension.
3: A uh, member of the House from Wisconsin is offering a McCabe, the former director of the FBI, a uh, short-term uh, election consultant job to come in and talk yeah. about election uh, security and give him maybe two days so he has a little buffer there and he can get his retirement.
2: Yeah. I mean... <laughs>
3: That's the thing. He, again, this just could have gone quietly, and it would have right. just been
2: another. He, by the way, he could have done it all too quietly, like without tweeting about it, and that would have even been better for him.
3: President Trump has called uh, this guy, the former director of the FBI, as of, yeah. he director of the FBI as of last week, and uh, Mueller, who's doing the investigation. Democrats, right? Yeah, they're both registered Republicans. Well, not registered. The FBI guy says he has voted for every Republican and stayed out of this last uh, cycle. Really? So every time he's voted as an adult, it's been Republican, but he, he, Trump keeps trying to paint him as a Democrat. The guy's wife, McCabe, his wife, ran for a Democratic uh, state, state Senate yeah. seat in Virginia and lost. And part of the conversation that the McCabe says he keeps having or has had with the president is he goes, so what's it like being married to a loser?
0: Ooh. Um, wow. Really,
3: that's, that's rude. Some, he, and McCabe is saying there's multiple conversations that start out talking about his wife as a loser. Yeah, usually not a good. That's not a good segue. No, into
2: a great conversation. So I need you to help me out. Well, no, we're done. Oh wow! So uh, all that's going on, but really, if you're not into politics, you're you know congratulations for yep. having a real life. Good job. Um, the, the, you really should be watching the NCAA tournament. People are dropping like flies. Yeah, teams that
3: should be winning. North Carolina lost last night. One seed Virginia lost to a commuter school in the Maryland area. I think it was. Yeah, or it was Virginia. I don't know. Yeah, I that U M something. Virginia. The, so how many, Maryland, Baltimore County, or something. Yeah. How many different tournaments are there? There is the NCAA tournament. Then kay. there's the NIT, which is the National Invitation Tournament, also known as the Nit that 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 used to be the top tournament back in the 50s but then it slipped to the second tier after the NCAA. So it's Once six, BYU yeah. was invited. And then there is a uh <laughs> yeah, there's of. another one called the CBI tournament. Mhm. And then I think there's a fourth one that I've never heard of before and you can watch that on some streaming it's, network out of Portugal yeah. or something. So wait, what's which one is the Sweet 16? The NCAA. 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 That's okay. the one. Not
2: to brag, but my bracket is killing it. Right. Hmm. 150,000.
3: Now, this may have changed some of the prospects for whoever wins the title, holding on to the title after a five-year period as the FBI is investigating many teams involved in ah, the NCAA tournament. Because yeah, a lot of the big teams are dropping, right. and those were the ones that were under indictment,
2: too. Some or peop- not under indictment, but under investigation. A
3: certain segment of people found a little joy that the University of Arizona lost. Yeah. As their head coach was reported by ESPN to be on FBI wiretaps offering a kind of intermediary type person a hundred thousand dollars to get him in touch with a recruit. Wow. Which, you know, that's Yeah, that's kind of a violation bad that's that's a bad thing. And Arizona has refuted this. They stood behind their coach, they cheered him on, they had a standing ovation at a home game right after that story was yeah. published. And then they went out in the first round and lost, like Arizona does. <clears throat> well, and then a bunch of their players uh, declared for the pros or whatever.
2: Oh, of course. Get out while the ship is sinking, right? Yeah. It's, or- a, it's a good time. This is really – I think it was uh, Jerem that said the, this is the best tournament in all of
3: sports. I don't know. I kind of like it when the there's a few upsets. You want yeah. some surprises. This is chaos, right? There's yeah. so many top seeds. There's one bracket that doesn't even have any no. any of the top four seeds. Mine's They're all gone. Decimated. Oh, I which has never one happened. of the top four. There's never been a 16 seed beat a one seed. That right? That's when the Maryland-Baltimore yeah. County beat Virginia. Everyone's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> what just happened?
2: And then uh, UMBC last, lost last
3: night to Kansas State, was it? Or Kansas. It either way. Yeah. They lost to a Kansas team.
2: Yeah. So, so, and Nevada won, so now... That's Nevada right. Nevada had two... Reno. They had
3: to come from behind in both the wins they've had to get to the Sweet 16.
2: Lots of last-second shots.
3: Michigan had a huge one oh. from a freshman who didn't make any three-pointers in the last two or three weeks and just happened to make one. It was like
2: a little leapfrog three-pointer the, Then at the win. celebration,
3: he sprinted around the floor. He didn't want to get tackled by the team because they always thought that if you got tackled on one of those buzzer-beater shots, yeah. you'd get hurt. So he kind of... Then he gave up and they tackled him.
4: My wife said that in the Reno game... uh Nevada was only in the lead for a total of uh, like ninety seconds, or I'm sorry, yeah, uh, like uh, I believe, it. yeah, ninety wow. seconds. It's a, they uh, were twenty points behind most of the game. This is this is good living right here.
3: Is it? Yeah. Is it's it just, a welcome distraction? Yes, and
4: okay. it's
2: they're just. What's fun is anyone can win.
3: It seems like it.
2: I mean, remember when you know Kentucky used to just roll everybody?
3: They still may. Yeah. Duke's Duke's out there still. They
2: they're Yeah, Kentucky. Doing well. Duke's
3: still in there.
2: Yeah. Kansas, my pick.
3: North Carolina lost yesterday, so it's the second year in a row the defending champion doesn't make it to the Sweet 16. Mm. There's that little fact and figure out there. I think that the idea that you have this the, the a one-game opportunity, it's not a series, right? You're not, yeah. not playing like four or five games. You're playing one game, opens it to any team can have a great day and win. The problem is for the whole tur- the tournament as a whole is you're going to get to the title game and not have any recognizable name, yeah, possibly, and then you, people are like, meh, I'm not really interested in watching this. <laughs> unless, unless it's just like if that 16th team, yeah, had ever
2: has anyone ever made it from 16th to the no final 16 game? has
3: never won the opening game. That's awesome. That's why when they beat Virginia over the weekend, everyone was like,
5: holy cow. Well,
2: because they're always seated against the top team, and right. that's see. hmm. There you have it. It can happen. Miracles can happen. Let's uh, speaking of miracle. Let's get to the rest of the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to?
3: Multiple stories. AT and faces off with the Justice Department today in federal court, hoping to succeed in its eighty-five billion dollar bid for Time Warner. Wow. That's the case where uh, at one point AT&T was like, so is this being held up because the president doesn't like CNN? Because you guys in the administration seem to like every big company buying big companies, but our deal seems to be a problem. Is this all about CNN? Interesting. So we'll see where that goes. Uh, We we mentioned this before, but uh, Vladimir Putin won re-election. Yeah, he's in. In Russia, 76% of the vote with 95% of ballots counted.
2: It, it's, right, it almost seems too good to be true.
3: Independent election monitor Golgo, uh, Golos counted 2,742 alleged violations, including ballot boxes placed out of sight of observation cameras and observers being blocked from carrying out their job. Different things like that. Um, it seems like a bigger threat. Really, is that you could die? Apparently, if I saw not vote. I saw, I saw a, vote, a photo yesterday. We have laws here where you can't put election material posters those sort of things advertising a candidate in a polling place yeah but the people walking into polling places in Russia and a huge wall mural of putin and everything he's running on listed so they someone complained and they fixed it by just covering up putin's face which is this little tiny part of the whole mural but like all the rest of his
4: you know platform
3: is written on the wall
4: so he won but i heard that uh they're looking into allegations of american interference of course yeah we we probably tried doubt that
3: so um Putin's opponents' numbers were small. The Communist Party got 11 percent. The Nationalist Party got 5 percent. And a TV personality that ran, she got 1.6 percent. Wow. That's not
2: bad. <laughs> See? that, But that does show you that Trump's win was really quite a feat. Right. It's hard to
3: be a TV personality and win. And the, uh, another uh, point this other article I found put up said, more interesting was the complete lack of congratulation from Western leaders, while those from China... Uh, Caucasus or Khakis, Kazakhstan? kakistan Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. There we go. Cuba, Belarus, Venezuela and Bolivia, they scrambled to wish Putin a, a, a you know, good job wow. on the win, but no US huh. congratulations or how Britain did, how or about
2: the UK. Yeah, Great Britain. Huh? Nobody
3: from any of the western world okay, apparently yeah. reached out. Over the weekend uh, AG Jeff Sessions fired FBI director Andrew McCabe. Some see it as a possible step towards firing with Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Trump's lawyers came out last night saying, we're not going to do that. Everybody went, yeah, we'll see. Uh, Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina Sunday warned that the constituents, or the consequences for President Trump if he tries to fire special counsel Robert Mueller, he said it would be, uh, if he tried to do that, that would be the beginning of the end of his presidency because we're a rule of law nation. Wow. So we'll see what happens. That's, I mean, again, a member of the GOP saying... Don't, mat, don't, don't mess, mess with, with Mueller. Mueller. President Trump made White House senior staff sign a non-disclosure agreement with heavy, uh, potentially heavy penalties for violating the NDA, according to a draft copy obtained by the Washington Post. Many of the staff balked at first, but were subsequently pressured by then-Chief of Staff Reince Priebus and the White House Counsel's Office to sign the, in the early months of the administration. The NDAs are reportedly very similar to the ones that some signed during the campaign and during the transition. Uh, the draft obtained by the Post had a ten million dollar violation fee attached, but noted that the final figure was most likely watered down in the final agreement. Mm. Is that a problem? Yeah. People in government service signing an India a non disclosure agreement to work in the governmental office of the White House.
2: Yeah. Okay. This is our. These are our people. This is our. We need to know. We need to have information. We need the data. Yeah. We I, need the facts.
3: I don't know if it's different when you're working for the president. I mean, you're a government. Yeah, maybe,
2: yeah. You don't want you don't want a bunch of books to come out. Maybe well, you need a non an NDA that lasts through the term of the president. Maybe that's it. So once the president's out of office, you can write your book.
3: Write your book. It just seems it seems odd that they would sign the non disclosure, but. Yeah. Maybe it's this situation they're in. The House and Senate bills uh, they need to pass their massive 2018 spending bill before the government shuts down on Friday, so we have another government shutdown oh, on Friday, possibly. Senior sources from both parties on Capitol Hill telling are saying they're expecting they'll get the deal done, though there's plenty of last minute haggling. Uh, the spending bill will cost more than a trillion dollars. Will further add to the national deficit and will or will add to the deficit, which is likely to reach at least eight eighty or eight hundred billion for the 2018 fiscal year. Uh, Republican leaders and Trump will sell the spending package as much needed boost for military spending Democrats will rightly be thrilled that they forced Republicans to capitulate so funding uh, many of their domestic priorities wow. so everyone seems to be getting something and they're adding a ton to the national debt um, leadership sources report they think the spending will be the last major law passed this year really it's March Hold on. so what would they do the rest of the year Uh, The rest of Congressional Calendar will mostly be given over to confirming Trump's nominees for Secretary of State and the CIA. Okay, then what would they do the next day? Not sure. I think what they're expecting is Secretary of State and CIA will be a huge fight. Holy cow. So we would spend our entire year? (laughs) Well, that and re-election. Oh, man. People are running for election, right? So they're just going to shut down government and get re-elected and come back next year and deal with government. Yeah. Huh? I mean, what, what would you be thinking if you're like, "Yeah, I've only got two more things to do this year." That'd be great. <laughs> That's crazy. And then you know, maybe Mueller drops something about you know July, But oh, somebody I didn't has to deal with. That. What if? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right in the middle of it all, we go. By the way, here's the final report. Like following the the book of Comey, who dropped it the week. How soon before the election? Right. Month By before? the way, uh, Comey's book comes out in about month i think oh that's great so well they'll have something to do and it was at number 15 on the amazon bestseller list even though it's not out yeah, it's it's just on pre-orders so. right so it was 15 to start the weekend then trump started tweeting about all this stuff and then it went to number one. Oh, president trump quit tweeting man is selling books megan merkel she's preparing yeah. for a wedding that's going to be in may just so you can no, it's synchronize our, it's your calendar, calendar there. Absolutely. um she's uh learning the correct etiquette Protocol and posture. She's going to be a princess. Prince, Harry, or Prince Harry, uh, Harry is even teaching her to drive on the right side of the road. Uh. The right, 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 wrong, whichever side the of the road. The other side, yeah. Uh, but there's another big thing she'll need to master before she walks up the aisle in May, and that's how to use her cutlery. Right. Mm. You eat. The proper way to do it. Uh. Like most of us, uh, she probably hasn't been doing it correctly, is what they're saying. Right. Thank you. The music is fitting. Apparently, one should never use a fork to scoop up Food. Oh really? A fork is for poking, not for scooping. What is for
2: scooping? It'd be the spoon. Well, I'm not supposed to grab my spoon to eat my potatoes.
3: Why not? What's wrong with that? It just seems inappropriate. Instead, hmm. the knife should be used to push food onto the back of the fork. This is exactly how the Brits eat. And this is how so you don't scoop, you have the knife to help the food over onto the fork, and then you eat it from yeah,
4: there. Yeah, but what if you don't have a knife? I've had so many meals where there's no knife, so you have to either, like, try to squeeze everything in between the tongs of the fork, if you're, or you just have to pick up the plate and just, like, shovel it in. That's why they made a spork.
3: If you're mm-hmm. eating a proper meal, you'll always have the full place setting.
4: That's mm-hmm. the other problem. Yeah, but when your kids set the table... Well, oh, you know, God. you're
3: going to do with Good what point. you... You're not going to keep proper etiquette. But <laughs> So it says, this obviously rather difficult for some foods, such as peas... Right. So this uh, the mirror here I'm reading from went to a website to find a way around the problem. It says it states it may be necessary to use mashed potatoes to make peas stick to the fork, but it is incorrect to turn the fork over and scoop. What what if Mm. there aren't any mashed potatoes? You need some binding agent. (laughs) Honey? Honey? I heard... Can I
2: have some honey? Honey, please, from my peas.
3: Because <laughs> uh, that's not all, and there are some other cutlery rules that she'll need to follow. One is pretty obvious. Only the fork and spoon should go into the mouth. That means no stabbing stuff with the knife and going straight in. Hmm. Definitely no licking of the knife. So, Matt, you're going to need to uh, curtail your... But the remnants. What if it's a Bowie knife?
4: you got to get the remnants. <laughs>
3: <laughs> my Bowie knife? That's funny. There are some foods that should only be eaten with a fork, including pastas and some types of fish really you should and it says uh, you should never hold your knife like a pen how about like uh, a murderer says instead the handle should lie in the palm of the hand secured
4: by the thumb and the index finger you know some meals though you you go to set the table and there just aren't enough dishes so you end up using like the gigantic fork but I don't think I don't think Megan Merkel's going to
2: be no.
3: having these problems. She will not have a, a dearth of uh, fine china hmm. to eat off of
2: does she, how does she eat her Kentucky fried chicken?
3: um I'm not sure if she would ever eat that in public. Well yet. what would she I, eat
4: if she ate dinner with the
3: trumps if that ever happens I
4: think in that situation if you're being if you're having kFC. That's something you're probably going to have fed to you by a servant, so you don't even have to touch it. That's a great point.
3: Finally, it is extremely rude to ask for a steak knife if you're at someone's home for a dinner, as it suggests the meat is too tough. But Mm. it is acceptable if you're at a restaurant because you're paying for the meal. That is a great. That's a great.
2: Point so you're too. just.
4: You, they would rather that you just develop arthritis because you no, can't you cut just, their tough you food.
2: Pick, you pick the meat up with your hand and you
4: just bite it off like a carnivore. Somehow that seems worse. Also,
2: there,
3: shake your head. Arr. There's a protocol drama that's kind of will be playing out as we get closer here. Does the president of the United States get an invite to the wedding? No. If the does the office get the invite or does the person get the invite? Because if it's the person, then he's not coming to the wedding. But the government would really like the prince and princess to invite the president of the United States to the wedding, since they're going to have all kinds of yeah. other governmental people from around the world attending. And you don't have the president, especially when you're taking your. You've already invited the former yeah. president. To the wedding. Yeah, what you do is you have a pseudo invite, and then you send Ivana,
2: Ivanka, and Jared Kushner.
3: Well, Ivanka congratulated her right after the wedding was made public, and uh, she was instantly hit on by everyone on Twitter, saying that you're just trying to get an invite. This looks pathetic.
4: Now, can't they just, <laughs> after the fact, say, "Oh, we sent the sent the invite. Didn't you get it? It's in the mail." Hmm. We oh, you fired, up, ex- you, you fired your mail guy. Yeah. That's why you didn't get it. Sorry.
2: It's not you. It's me. Oh, brother. Hey, uh, let's do this then. Uh, if, if that didn't make you anxious enough to have to go figure out what, you know, what fork to use and how not to scoop up food with a fork. Up next, we're going to be talking about raising anxiety-resistant children, giving you some tools, some ideas for uh, how to decrease the anxiousness in your family. You know, most of us won't get through life without experiencing at least a little form of uh, fear, panic, anxiety, maybe some depression. Each can be crippling if not treated properly. And in many ways, it seems that these mental disorders are more common than ever. Here to talk about uh, anxiety is Jeff Gregson. He's a therapist, a counselor who specializes in the treatment of depression and anxiety. He's here today to talk with us about how to fight back against uh, anxiousness and how to get your children to be more resilient to anxiety. Good to have you here, Jeff. Thanks for your time. I appreciate you having me. This is – it really seems like anxiousness, anxiety is on the rise. Why is that? Is it we're just noticing it more or is it actually rising?
5: So I literally get that question every single day. Yeah. Uh, It's both. Yeah. Absolutely anxiety is on the rise. But also we're more aware and as the public we're more aware. Yeah. And I think there's lots of things that are pointing towards this. With the rise of suicide, especially in the western states – I think people in the public are becoming more more aware and more concerned about anxiety. But I've been doing this for 17 years, and that's always been my focus, is anxiety and depression. And I've seen it. Yeah. I just think that we, as a people, are becoming uh, acutely more aware of the problem of anxiety.
2: Do we know the cause? Because every time I have a guest on and we talk about this, it's the research is still out, it seems like, on – We know there's a genetic component to some, but we also know that some of it's situational. Some of it's just maybe how we parented kids. Right. So do we know the cause of anxiety and are there anything – is there anything out there in our our environment now that might be inducing more anxiety?
5: So there's always that question, nature versus nurture. Yeah. And so I tell people I talk with, look, does it really matter, right, Right. whether it's coming from how you're raised or from a genetic – you know. Co factor. So I think what's happening is that we, in our society, we've gone to a situation where we're a lot more comfortable. Right. Where we are not as challenged as much. You know, our days are pretty easy. We have things come easily to us, whether it be information or just, you know, to sustain ourselves. And so we become comfortable, which creates anxiety. Yeah. Which is ironic, right? Yeah. And we right. think that if everything's okay, we've got everything just down pat, that we're not going to experience anxiety. The reality is, I think as parents, we're struggling with allowing our children to feel fear. Yeah. And I believe that comes from our own anxiety. So anxiety resonates between people. And so you have a parent who has experienced some of their own anxiety. As parents, we want better for our children than what we've had. So what happens then is we try to create situations where we create accommodation for our children. Yeah. Right. And so what happens is when they're in a situation that's difficult, we want to rescue them. You know, the classic helicopter parenting. Right. Therefore, our children don't experience fear, but more importantly, they don't experience failure. And we almost we almost
2: give them this social mirror that they can't handle it. Yeah, absolutely. So then all of a sudden, because we're always intervening, they must be thinking they I don't know how to do this. They, I, yeah. I, I must not be able to do this.
5: Absolutely. You know, modeling is the best way that we parent. And yeah. so when we show our children, hey, this is not okay, yeah. and so some of that apparent accommodation. You know, one of the classic examples I give is if you watch your child, you know, riding a bike for the first time, okay? You take the training wheels off. They're ready to go. So you're running behind them, and then what happens inevitably? The, the bicycle crashes, yeah. right? They fall down. First thing they do is they look towards you. And if you react, you know, (laughs) with a lot of anxiety and a lot of robust, then what do they do? They do the same. But if you get up and you give them some empathy, absolutely, then you're able to get them back on the bike. Right. They'll whine a little bit, but off they go.
2: Off they go, and they they can make it. Is there – one of the things in in an article you wrote on psychology today is the idea that you can create an anxiety-resilient kid – Explain that. You can't anxiety-proof them. Correct. Right, right. But you can make them resilient to it, adaptable. I think
5: think it's important to make that distinction, right? Proof means impermeable. But uh, resilient means they're able to bounce back. Yeah. And so failure is key to success. And so teaching your children, again, you know, the more mistakes you make, the more opportunity you have to be able to be successful. And so teaching our children that the things they face— You know, I I use the common analogy of anxiety being a separate entity. So when I talk to parents, I tell them, teach your children that anxiety is like this monster, the separate, you know, being floating out there. You know, have them create what that, you know, anxiety monster looks like for them. But they're fighting and attacking that. And that anxiety monster is telling them lies. So these are, you know, untruths about themselves and what they're capable of. And so if parents can learn to start attacking that, and looking at that as something separate from themselves, then that creates that resilience. Yeah. Because they're no longer beating themselves up. Individuals with anxiety and children with anxiety, they're often extremely kind, extremely sweet children, mm-hmm. right? They want everybody else to be happy. They're often perfectionists and pleasers. Yeah. And it's really easy to, you know, to build on this and to get in trouble. Right. Because then the individual is constantly looking to please others as opposed to pleasing themselves.
2: Huge. And then... Um, so are those you, – because you do talk about distortions and a lot of times we get uh, – we, we distort, I guess, what reality is. We distort right. if we're going to be liked or not. We distort right. uh, if we can do something. Talk about how, how we distort and how that impacts our anxiousness.
5: So one large area of anxiety I work in is social anxiety. The, the often misconception with this is that people with social anxiety, they don't want to be social. Yeah, uh, they don't like people.
2: Yeah, they, they, they are uh, they just hate people.
5: Right, right, and that's not social anxiety. No, okay, that is social anxiety is when we go to a social situation, and especially if it's something that's new, mm-hmm. right, and unique, people we don't know, we're worried about how those people are judging us. So going back to that classic, you know, pleaser and perfectionist. People with social anxiety believe that if they can get everybody to like them and accept them, that they're okay. That's yeah. validation, yeah. right? They want that, that achievement-based validation. So when you're in that situation with social anxiety, you, an individual needs to learn that, again, the anxiety is telling them a lie. Right. They're telling them that people are judging. Now, do we? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we know there's a fact that yeah. on initial you know, glean, we are going to you know, judge a person, but that's just a matter of seconds. And then we let it go. And so if we can start recognizing that, yeah, people do judge but they don't really care. Yeah, nobody cares. Nobody really cares. And we're able to get past that and do what we need to for ourselves first. So I I let parents know, look, you have to teach your child, if they're very highly anxious and extremely nice, you've got to teach them in some ways to be more selfish.
2: Yeah, interesting, because that's, that's a word we hate to use. But, right. But selfish meaning just protect yourself a little bit more, or not protect it, but Exert what you need for you instead right. of just always looking for what others need.
5: The more you can do for yourself, mm-hmm. the more you can do for others.
2: Yeah. Because right. the the pleaser is pleasing at their expense. Exactly. Sure, I'll be there exactly. at 5 o'clock. Right, right. When they really can't be
5: and they're killing themselves to get there. Well, and here's the key too, right? So if you're this classic pleaser and you're doing things for other people and you're sacrificing – there's going to be a time and a moment when you look and you are going to be upset with yourself. You're going yeah. to be beating yourself up. You're like, I shouldn't have done that. I don't have time to do that. Yeah. Okay. And then with that, what happens is you, I mean, you're stuck with yourself. If you have a friend who doesn't have your back. Right. Right. Who does not, you don't trust them. You can dismiss that friend. Okay. You're not going to put responsibilities on that friend that are going to make you, you know, anxious and worried and stressed. But if you do that to yourself. Think about that for a second. If you do that to yourself, then you're not going to trust yourself. Yeah. And if you don't trust yourself, you can't get away from yourself. Right. Think how anxious you were going to be. I mean, that's anxiety. Yeah, that's why. That's
2: depression. And that's why you would feel anxious and depressed. Absolutely. Because you don't believe you can handle it. Correct. That's a big deal. Um, Another, uh, you put together 10 counterintuitive ways to fight anxiety. One you brought up was be more selfish. Another is listen to your enemies and ignore your friends. Right. No, why is that?
5: <laughs> you know I I tell people every day, you know, if you want free therapy, right? Listen yeah. to your enemies because they're going to give you very clear, precise feedback. Yeah. Some of the best feedback I've been given is from individuals that I, I may respect and I may not respect. Yeah. But they're going to tell me like it is. Yeah, right. And the problem is is we quickly dismiss that because it is, you know, it hits us hard and it hits us deep. But you will. And people who you know, are very, you know, not so much close, but your friends or people who have, you know, that, you know, co boundary with you, they are going to tell you what you want to hear. And then you're not going to change. Yeah. Right. And so it's also becoming fear and rejection inoculated. Okay? Yeah. The more difficult things we hear about ourselves and we realize it's not the end of the world, you're not going to die. Tomorrow will come. You do better. And then you're, you're, you feel that empowerment to be able to face things that are challenging. And that you're going to fail at. So true.
2: It it really – and it's – but it's so counter – it seems intuitive to go to your enemy and to believe these others when all these pleasers around you are telling you you can't do anything wrong why would i listen to the evil dark people that are so scary and uh this is crazy again we're speaking with jeff gregson who is um talking to us about how to raise anxiety resistant kids and it, there's a great website if you go to his website allthingsanxiety.com you can just get more information about his work and his uh his online counseling some of his programs there as well plus his podcast you greg you've been at this 17 18 years do you um, do you see a difference in the treatment, how we're working and dealing with anxiety today than maybe we did 10 years ago? I do. One of the
5: things that we're doing a lot better now is exposure work. So you obviously have to identify what the problem is, what type of anxiety you're dealing with. Yeah. You know, there's social anxiety, there's panic attacks, there's generalized anxiety. And then you have OCD, yeah. which is under the umbrella of anxiety, but treated quite differently. Yeah. So, but this piece of exposure, so once you've identified what you have, once you've identified what that person personally is dealing with, it's important to get to the core, their core belief, right? The, The core comments they give themselves. Once you purge that out, then you basically have to do the work, which is the exposure. So facing the fear. So if it is social anxiety, then the person has to face situations over and over again where they're being rejected and when they see again it's not the end of the world then things change for them the important part too though is to get to that core belief so as you talk to somebody who say has some of this generalized anxiety this overall feeling right kind of in that mid-range or that social anxiety you're going to find that they have a core belief about themselves or a core fear Hmm. so let's say that core fear is rejection and lowliness so if they're in a social situation, they're, let's say, at a, you know, at a party, at a group gathering, and there's a group talking. And so they approach that group, and they look at it, and they think to themselves, you know, do I really want to approach these yeah. people? Do I really want to put my you know, two words in? And so they think about it, and eventually they tell themselves, no, I'm afraid of what people are going to say about me in their heads. So what do they do? They walk away. They go sit in the corner. And then what happens?
2: And they feel, then they get then they get depressed or they get worried like right now i am alone and they start validating their concern
5: exactly right they just yeah. fed that core belief yeah. and that core fear and themselves. it
2: self fulfills so so i guess part of this is um you, you got to know what your core belief is and then how do you correct the core belief
5: so the core belief is like a double-edged sword Yeah, because it's it's good, too. It's what yeah. motivates us. It helps us. Yeah, it drives us. It drives us, exactly. So you want to make sure that you recognize you're not going to ever get rid of that core right. belief. You just have to be aware of it. Yeah. And this is where it goes into, and this is something that we've been doing great, I believe, in counseling over the past 15 years, is using evidence-based yeah. right, psychology, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, right. dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT. You know, it, you take those thoughts, you take those beliefs. And I teach what I call the three C's. Really simple. I believe if you can you know, keep it in your head and bring it out of your head quickly, it's going to be a lot more effective than a bunch of worksheets. Yeah, right. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so you, you catch the thought, right? Yeah. So if it's dealing with your core fear and challenging that, you catch the thought, hey, you recognize in that situation, uh, you know, I'm, af- I'm afraid of my acceptance. I'm afraid of being lonely.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: The next is to challenge that and ask yourself all right so really my fear too here is to be engaging in a social situation you know again is it the end of the world if someone does reject me now here's the real key this is the this is the better right you got the the good and the better and that is to tell yourself yeah they might reject me so what yeah not that oh they're not going to and everybody's going to love me you don't want to feed that part of it right. you want to challenge it by saying yeah so what so what would happen so what? then i mean exactly what's the worst thing yeah Right. Then
2: what? So you catch it, you challenge it, then change. change it.
5: And so that can be in the moment, right? It's like opposite day. Yeah, you do what you don't feel like doing. But that's the exposure work as well. And that's what I work on with my clients is, okay, now we're going to repeat this behavior over and over again and literally go with that individual and do these exposures or give them lots of homework and, assignments. And
2: then I guess eventually it becomes, uh, it becomes automatic. It runs without thinking. It does. It does. It yeah. takes a long time.
5: Yeah. Right? It's, it's it's behavior shaping. Yeah. So it takes a while to reshape old shaped behaviors. But... I and mean, I remember uh, taking in college
2: a speaking class and thinking, and then I remember watching a woman <laughs> speak in the class and have a hives break out. She just right. got hives and just started. It was horrible. <laughs> Sounds terrible. As she was speaking. And I'm watching her and I'm thinking, is that what I look like? But part of this is just you have to be aware. You just have to be aware that – and then when I realized, no, I don't look like that right. when I speak. I don't get all red. I don't – once I realized that, then I right, – I honestly remember that right then my mind thinking, oh, all you have to do is kind of verify. Right. Just start verifying these beliefs that you have and – or not or, or validating that they're not, act, they're not actually happening. And then – so why does our mind play such games on us? Why, why, would it, why would it want us to be so afraid of something right. that really is it's, – it's going
5: to cost us big time down the road? Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent question. We, uh, we're constantly assessing risk. So you could say this goes back to the primitive man, you know, the primitive yeah, mind. Right. Right? We are constantly looking for situations you know, that can harm us. I find too that individuals who deal with a lot of anxiety and stress are also very intelligent – and very aware, yeah. and very insightful. So they're obviously picking up on more situations that are you know, risk, you know, intense. So our, we do, we want to prevent ourselves. And there's really two ways of dealing with anxiety, and that is to control or avoid. Yeah. It's the classic fight or flight. So we believe that if we can control everything around us, then we prevent anything negative from happening to right. us. Now that, of course, is exhausting right? Not the way to go. The other situation is avoiding. We just put our head in the sand and don't do anything. Again, that can be very difficult. So I do believe it's 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 natural. It's innate. It's a protection. And we do have to fight against that in order you know to progress. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. And if you don't, again, I guess you got to see it. You do. And then yeah. start recognizing your victories, right? Over time, you're succeeding all the time. Absolutely. And this success is similar to the Next success. So if I could speak in this situation, I ought to be able to speak in this situation. Exactly. And then go test it and then
5: gather the data and validate it. Oh, I did. That worked. And I think it's important to know that we are going to feel, right, that intensity and that yeah. stress. I think of the person who, you know, has fallen into a cold lake, Right. I recently watched this video of this, this gentleman who's demonstrating how to get out of a frozen. Did you see that? That was horrible. Yeah, <laughs> it was horrible. He did. It, it was amazing how he did it, but
2: it was
5: horrible. But a brilliant example yeah. of how anxiety works. Yeah. Because if you notice, he went on the ice, right? And he intentionally you know, broke fell in, in, broke in. But as he hit that water, he said, okay, what's going to happen first is you're going to feel this intense pain and panic. Yeah. You don't want to respond to that because if you do – you're going to start inhaling that's water right. and you're
2: going to drown. That's right. He
5: says, if you just sit in it just 30 let it, seconds. And let it, it pass. It'll pass. It'll pass. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the same way with anxiety. And then after you let that pass, then you become more resourceful where then you can handle the situation. Yeah. And the problem is, is we, we oftentimes panic and we often, you know, we fear that initial shock and we believe I shouldn't feel that. You're going to yeah. every single time. But you're right. The more you do it, the more you realize, okay, I'll feel that, but I'm going to be able to get past it. I'm going to have successes. I'm just going to be okay with it. Is
2: that um so so we could be coaching our kids that the panic is normal, the anxiousness is normal, right? It, and and it too will pass. What what do you do when your kids have have gone through it? Like even going to school. We had a child with social anxiety and he just hated going to school. Right. And so when he got home from school, we'd always talk about do you remember how you were feeling all that fear before and then what happened when we dropped you off and he would talk us through it and see and it was great. And within a half a minute or two minutes, you were, you were
5: to normal, just playing with your friends again. Right. I would say, again, try to find out what it is, you know, at the core what's, of why you struggle. What's struggling. their core belief, yeah. Right. So this would translate in other situations, other areas besides school. Yeah. And then when you find that, then you can, again, set up exposures and opportunities to challenge them. Yeah. So maybe it's say hey, when you go to the restaurant, you're ordering your own meal. You're having to speak up, right? And again, that's a good thing. But the, you know, something that's better is then you make your child change the order. Oh, right? make <laughs> so them talk to the make waiter. them talk to the waiters. They look, actually, I want something different, and to have to deal with that, you know, intense yeah. feeling of oh no, I'm letting this person down, and that's what would they so think?
2: Good, and and let's get this let's get this clear, Jeff. That won't kill them, right? Not – no, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the anxiety expert says, no, that will not. That will me. not.
5: Your child will be OK.
2: Is there – it also goes back to our parenting in the – like you spoke about earlier, that we have this need as parents to, to make everything all right for our kids. Right. And it seems like we are robbing them of the opportunity to know how much power they have to make their own life right.
5: If you give your child a reassurance, so back to the bicycle example, they, they're going to look to you and believe, well, there must be something wrong, yeah. right? So the more you say, you're okay, you're going to be fine, no, people do like you, they believe that there must be something wrong. Otherwise, right. you would be saying all of this. That's right. And you wouldn't be coaxing them.
2: So, so it's, it's a, there's a healthy side to, to just being supportive and letting them grow. Absolutely. Be supportive and let them grow. What's the one thing – if you're going to leave us with one thing, what's the one thing we could all do today with our children to make them more resilient? If you – even reinforce anything you've already told us.
5: Yeah, I would say give them opportunity to be able to advocate for themselves, to be able to stand up for themselves and to build confidence by putting them in situations. That's good, yeah. Where they have to be challenged. And they have to engage with others where they may be judged. Yeah. And and they'll
2: succeed. I mean, and then point out the success. Let them see it. Yes. They did it. They did it. Jeff Gregson's his name. Go to the website, uh, allthingsanxiety.com. All Things Anxiety. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Wonderful, Appreciate wonderful it. insight. We'll continue the journey to a little Coach's Corner up next. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
3: I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt
5: and his coaching corner. Laball.
2: ball. Welcome back, friends, uh, to the Matt Townsend Show. Think about it just as a parent. Your job is to be a coach, a guide on the side with your kids. And if they're experiencing anxiety, then you need to learn. You need to not necessarily freak out about it. Don't get anxious about it but um, but but learn that it's just skills, it's tools, it's ideas, it's information. That's all uh, our children need in order to handle their anxiety. And it's, it's also be careful what you're reflecting on them, because if you act like they can't handle it, if you keep projecting that they're broken and sick and twisted and their lives are going to fall apart, that will inherently create more and more anxiety for them. So... Just be aware; it's it's not a life sentence. Uh, more and more people are experiencing anxiety, and yet, uh, in my eyes, um, as somebody that I guess I had anxiety growing up, I never actually thought of it that way. I never thought of it as anxiety. I thought this was just life, you know. I thought you just stress about stuff, but I I think that also forced me to get some really cool coping skills, humor and uh just you know getting down to work and putting putting myself to work on certain things also the the ability to learn my way through it but i think it made me better i think anxiety also has the power to make you a more ang- a more uh, attentive and empathic person because i tend to th- overthink things or think through a lot of things ahead of time i think i i understand a little deeper um some certain people when i come across them because i've thought th- certain thoughts that they have thought so it's not all bad, folks. Uh, it's just life. And I believe life is here to teach if you let it. And we open ourselves up to uh, more and more opportunities to learn. So that's, that's it. Don't, don't hate it. Just accept it and identify it and start making a change about it. That's how you manage anxiety. We'll continue the journey straight ahead to a little um, uh, some empty news with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Jeff Liam Simpson will now enlighten us with uh, our Empty News segment. Jeff, what do we need to catch up on?
4: Well, today I feel like is kind of an addition of what would you do? Ooh. Because there are so many stories that you would think people would act in a rational manner, but they just can't seem to do it. They just don't do it. So what would you do if you ended up on the wrong flight? Oh, boy. And is, is the flight in the air? You were past the point where they're they're no longer allowing people to exit the plane.
2: Yeah. What would you do? Well, I just would then I guess I'm going for a ride.
4: <laughs> <laughs> to I the mean, wrong city, huh? If you can't if you can't get off Freaking out's not going to help. Okay. Well, freaking out is kind of what this guy chose to do. <laughs> so, and unfortunately, this was also on United Airlines. It was a oh, flight from New Jersey United. to Tampa. Yeah. And uh, this guy uh, was unable to take off on time Sunday evening after a passenger escaped the plane by opening the emergency exit door and jumping off using the inflatable slide. Really? Yep. 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 So it was parked at the gate at uh, Newark Liberty International Airport when the Passenger popped a chute and slid down, and when officers got to the scene, the panicked passenger was yelling that he didn't belong on the plane because it was the wrong flight. Despite the claim he was on the wrong flight, Port Authority said he was ticketed to be on the plane to Tampa. Listen to this. The flight was delayed for more than five hours. Uh. Yeah. See, but now many lives have been ruined, and this is something that we come up with. I mean, it happens to us all the time when we're on the road, right? Like we miss a we miss a turn. Some people do the really dangerous thing oh. and just like cross five lanes. Oh, I can, especially make it. on the freeway. Yeah. Other people, and I'm you know I'm not perfect at this, but other people do the more sensible thing of we'll just take the next yeah, exit. Let's just we'll turn. We'll, it around, we'll fix it. Right? Yeah. Okay, here's another what would you do. What if someone uh, tossed out some food that you were eating? Was I... Like you You came, maybe you came to the fridge and it was no longer there and your wife's like, oh, yeah, sorry, I threw that out. thought it was bad. thought you were done with it. But I, but yeah, well, I I would, I'd ask them
2: to go get me some more.
4: Would you call the cops? Probably not. So a Connecticut man was arrested. Uh, he's being accused of calling 911 four times. To complain about someone throwing his clam chowder into a dumpster, <laughs> and then once more to complain uh, about being given a misdemeanor summons for misusing the nine one one system. Yeah. So he said he called nine one one. This guy said he called nine one one because he had no other number to contact police. That's why you get online, you look at the yeah. the non emergency numbers. I find the other number. He was released on a promise to appear in court March twelfth. An hour later. Dispatch reported they received another 911 call from this guy. During this 911 call, uh, he allegedly did not report any sort of emergency. Instead, to complain, the dispatcher he had uh, to the dispatcher he had received a summons for misusing the 911 system.
2: Come on, come on. Oh well, you know what, folks? Life's too complicated to make it even harder. Just when it when it when you get hit in the face, just take it sometimes and walk away. Walk away. Ouch! A little lesson from The Matt Townsend Show.
0: This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
2: Good morning, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. Hope it's going well. Uh, if you're in the East Coast, you're preparing for another Nor'easter. If you're in Alabama, you're recovering from a tornado. Hmm. It's crazy. The weather is crazy. We hope you're doing well where you are. Uh, welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with uh, Jeff and Terry. Again, spending all night researching and preparing for what I think today is one of my favorite interviews. Maybe, well, not ever. We've got a big dog coming. <laughs> Way to sell it. It's, it's
1: <laughs> I've,
2: had, I've had other interviews that were awesome, but today, Captain <laughs> Scott Kelly will be joining us. We've got a great uh, discussion with a man that's been in space 520 days, which
4: uh, almost beats Jeff's record. Almost. Almost.
2: Not quite. So... Um, We'll be talking with, seriously, that's the guy that carries today the, the longest record for an American in space 340 days straight, almost a year. Take that. Take Buzz that. Aldrin, Buzz. Neil Armstrong. How long were you up there? Anyway, pretty cool stuff. Um, Let's get uh, to Terry, who's chomping at the bit to get to the news. Terry, what should we be focused on?
4: An
3: explosion at a FedEx facility near San Antonio, Texas, was reportedly caused by a package bomb that was en route to Austin, where four such bombs within the last two weeks have killed two people and injured four others. One woman was treated at the scene for a headache, but there were no serious injuries. Several outlets, including CBS Austin and the Washington Post, report the package was heading to Austin an Austin address when it detonated in the facility just after midnight local time. Uh, FBI officials said it was more than possible the early morning bomb was related to the other local explosions wow all the other bombs this month were hand delivered to the scenes but the officials report on monday that the attacker or attackers have been evolving in their methods tuesday's package reportedly contained nails uh and other metal shrapnel just like the four previous bombs remember the one over the weekend it was a sunday night it was a trip wire yeah stretched across the street that some uh, people on a bike were able to trip so they're investigating. They're not sure what's going on. They they actually asked uh, for help from the person. Like, send us if you have communicate with us. You have you have a message. You're mad about something, and that's when they attacked again. So oh man, we'll see what happens. Attorney Sir President Donald Trump would reportedly sat down for the first time with a in person with Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigative team. According to CNN, the meeting took place last week, focused on the topics investigators could inquire of Trump if they had a face-to-face meeting with him cnn also reports that Mueller's team wants to ask trump about the firing fbi director james comey in addition to the president's knowledge of former national security advisor michael flynn's phone calls with the former russian ambassador Mm. key topics Facebook slid $42 billion in market value since the New York Times reported Friday that Cambridge Analytica harvested private information from Facebook profiles of more than 50 million users without their permission. After a weekend of backlash, the social network stock was down 7% Monday, while the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down more than 1%. The stock drop also comes The social networking site investigates employee Joseph Chandler's ties to the data firm. Chandler is currently a virtual reality researcher at Facebook, what was but was the former director of global science research, the firm who provided the data to Cambridge Analytica, who then provided it to others and shouldn't it's crazy. have.
2: Crazy, by the way. This same um, one of the whistleblowers in that whole Cambridge Analytica thing was saying that they were testing Trump presidential campaign slogans in 2014. Hmm. So they, like, like build a wall, and they were testing, showing videos of people climbing walls and testing videos about make it great or the swamp, kind of drain the swamp idea.
3: Oh, wow. They toss it out, see what, what info out, came by back. By the
2: way, in 2014, so the idea that President Trump just kind of did this at the last minute, maybe it's not so true.
3: Didn't he declare yeah, he'd, yeah, he probably declared or probably 2014, early 2015, and then you run the entire year and then 2016. So, yeah, that makes sense. Ah, crazy, huh? In- Finally, a new massive study of 2.3 million drivers by Zendrive found that not even the threat of going to jail seems to be able to stop people from using their phones while behind the wheel. And Mississippians are the worst abusers of the bunch. Really? This out of Bloomberg. Uh, among 18% of drivers in the Magnolia state are considered phone addicts. That's 18% of drivers are phone addicts. Wow. Meaning they call, text, or fiddle with apps at a rate that is more than three times that of the average driver and that's even with a statewide ban on texting in place mississippi isn't an outlier in that regard though In the 15 states that have taken the additional step of banning handheld devices altogether the number of phone addicts only dropped by 10% wow doesn't seem to scare the people the people
2: yeah they apparently don't quite get what prisons like
3: and what's probably a surprise to any or probably a surprise to anyone who lives there new england and in the pacific northwest had the most low risk drivers Oh, really? Right, but people probably still complain about, they're always looking at their phone. That's always when I know someone's going slow on the freeway, Yeah, and they're like right in the middle of everyone, and they're really slow, and you drive by, and they're looking at their phone.
2: You know what I've noticed? It's usually a cop.
3: Well, they those, have,
2: co- those cops drive so slow, they drive me crazy. How can I they also get have, to work on time if the cops are going to drive the speed
4: limit? They also have laptops right there in the front seat. I know, playing, so are, are they I, distracted?
2: Well, I saw one guy playing Fortnite.
4: There you go. You can always tell when there's a cop on the freeway because everybody is going at a snail's pace. It's amazing. <laughs> Areas with the most high-risk drivers were dotted throughout the
3: South. Really? So the South, scary, dangerous
2: tech drivers, and the Northeast... Not so scary, but doesn't a lot of the technology come from the, or no, Northwest. Doesn't mm. the Northwest, doesn't a lot of tech come from Northwest?
4: Yeah, and they're fairly low when you're looking well, at these
2: scales. they're probably on the, yeah, they're, they're doing it all day. They're like, why do it while we drive? L-
4: a lot of people in Seattle, for instance, don't drive. They take the bus.
2: Ah.
4: It's a thing. Look it up. I lived there for five years.
2: Yeah, you did. You took the census there. So if anybody has a census
4: no, problem... I administered the census there. That's it, yeah. It's I session. was the census there.
2: Yeah. You always made people... You thought census and sensei were the same thing. And then you're like, this is going to be the coolest job ever. I'm going to be a sensei.
4: I just thought that because that was what the general consensus was. Uh, anywho, um,
2: that's... Uh, <laughs> Speechless. I don't, I don't know quite what to say after that. So everybody's battling now. Weather. That's. I mean, the, the fourth nor'easter. Right,
3: and we're supposed. To, the the government needs to figure out a funding bill by Friday, and the storm could affect that because if the sta- office staff and the aides can't make it in from the suburbs into D.C., then yeah. the functionality of offices grinds to a halt, and they can't pass bills. And we need this by Friday, or we shut down.
2: Uh, this is. And Corker, by the way, may throw a cork in it.
3: Is he going to become uncorked, he, as we he just made,
2: Corker is saying, maybe we ought to have a, a law put in the bill, this mandatory spending bill thing, that is about you, how, you, how the president can't fire
3: Mueller. Oh, I heard about that this morning. That's interesting. He's kind of
2: teasing him with it. That's
3: interesting that they're- playing with him. Yeah. Playing with him. And it it has bipartisan support. Paul Ryan's office came out and said, we're supportive of this. Mitch McConnell's office has yet to say anything about anything because he's just hiding. He's terrified. As the turtle backs into his shell, so to speak. Are you saying Mitch McConnell's
2: a
4: turtle? Some people do. I don't know. Is he bald? No. Does he wear tortoise shell glasses? No.
3: Okay.
2: But he does wear glasses. Yeah. I don't think they're tortoise shell.
4: Hmm.
3: Yeah, but many issues. Republicans come out and say, "Yeah, Mueller is. You know, we shouldn't mess with, with Mueller." But Don't then, when it comes them. to this law, they won't touch it because yeah. they need Trump to get reelected. Okay, that's kind of how this works. That's kind of how works. Kinda politics.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's all politics. Hey, up next, we're going to get away from politics. We're going to be talking with Captain Scott Kelly. Um, man, oh man, five hundred, I think, in twenty days he spent in space, uh, one of the longest. By the way, he also had a twin. If you remember, that was also an astronaut. And uh, we're going to find out really what happened to his DNA after being in space as long as he was. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Men honored today to have a true blue American hero on the line with us. Scott Kelly is a former military fighter pilot and a test pilot, an engineer, a retired astronaut, and a retired U.S. Navy captain. In October 2015, he set the record for the total accumulated number of days spent in space, the single longest space mission by an American astronaut, And uh, which, by the way, blew my mind. It's already That record's already been broken uh twice um believe it or not and but uh captain scott kelly is joining us today to talk about his book endurance a year in space a lifetime of discovery discovery captain kelly thank you so much for being with us
1: today oh my pleasure and i uh yeah the the record that was broken twice was the total number of days in space i still have the the single longest mission, mission for an american astronaut.
2: Do yeah. you really? I mean, 520 days was was cause, and four missions you've had um but you were in space on one flight, one one mission for 340 days, is that right? Yeah. yeah Unbelievable. Wow, well we're honored to have you here and i uh when I told my son that I had was going to have you on the on the phone today on the show today, he just was jealous as ever, so just know that there's a lot of people that that look up to you that revere you, and thank you too for your service to our country it's amazing what you've been able to do
1: oh, I appreciate that
2: you bet now talk to me what what is it like um 520 days in space, by the way, and you've now become even more notorious because of some of the research they did with your brother, who also uh, was an astronaut, Mark Kelly. Um, and they're finding out that your your DNA is apparently different and has changed by being in space um, than your twins.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know if notorious is the right word, <laughs> but maybe uh, it got a little bit of attention.
2: Yeah, it did. Um,
1: it, yeah, I read that. I read
2: that about my DNA being does, different. Now, what's it like to have your brother Mark Kelly, who's also an astronaut? I mean, are you? I guess you can just always drop the fact that you've got more records than he does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and now I don't even have to say we're identical twins anymore because my DNA has been changed.
2: You've shifted enough. How? How has? How has going to space impacted your body? What? What has it done to you? And do you notice it?
1: No, I don't notice anything. I mean, certainly when I got back, I, uh, you know, there was a readjustment period. Uh, Yeah, I talk about that in my my book, Yeah, actually right in the beginning. But, uh, yeah, now I don't feel any differently as a result of my time in space.
2: What do you notice? To me, I've always wondered, especially with the International Space Station, what are relationships like there? I mean, I know you're professionals and you're there to do business, but what happens when you show up— And you meet each other, and do you ever just think, whoa, that guy's got an attitude?
1: (laughs) Well, you know the people you're going to fly in space with generally for years prior. So um, I say generally because theres I had the experience where I was on the space station because I was there so long. They had a a crew member swap out, and there was a guy, a Kazakh guy, that came up. To the space station that I didn't even know what the guy looked like before he showed up,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which was kind of unusual. But, you know, everyone's a professional and we're very, you know, well-vetted. Yeah. we carrying space agencies. So, you know, there's it's rare for there to be a problem with people getting along.
2: Does, I mean, I guess, too, when you're in charge of some of these missions and, and commander of the mission um there is i guess there's a hierarchy there as well, so even though you're professionals do, do you ever have to pull rank or is it just so obvious what needs to be done
1: yeah really the latter yeah um, you know everyone knows what their role is, and um you know being the commander, yeah there's a little bit of you know organizational work um that goes into it on a on a day to day basis. But it's not like you're up there barking orders at people. Yeah, um, you know, mostly that role is um, important during an emergency on board, and uh, but otherwise, it's you're just all kind of like colleagues and friends.
2: Did you notice um, and talk to us about it? Because I, I assume with you, there is a moment where. You know, you've done this so much, uh you were I think you were on two um were were you uh you commanded two shuttle discovery, space shuttles, and then you went up in the Soyuz, uh Russian Soyuz spacecraft, was it another two times?
1: I flew as a pilot of the space shuttle Discovery on my first flight. I was a commander of Space Shuttle Endeavour on my second flight, and then I flew twice on the Soyuz after that
2: did what, what took your breath away when you think back to this um and all of your experiences in space talk about a few of the moments that really just blew your mind
1: you know watching um you know on the space shuttle the first time a mind blower oh <laughs> uh, yeah uh landing the space shuttle as the commander was exciting and uh you know a uh highlight of my flying career um you know spending a year in space for me was a uh, a significant life event um the spacewalks that I did on the space station this last time and then the uh you know coming back on the soyuz is a, is a crazy experience
2: is it really just just the ride is crazy
1: yeah it's like You know, the way I describe it often is like it's kind of like going over Niagara Falls in a barrel (laughs) Wow! Uh, while you're on fire.
2: Yeah. (laughs) A burning barrel as you're flying over uh, Niagara. What's it like? I can't imagine the countdown as you're as you're basically strapped into fuel boosters and, you know, knowing the potential you know, dangerousness of it all. What's that like as you're waiting for the countdown of the space shuttle to take off?
1: Uh, You know, for the shuttle, you have a lot to do. Uh, Certainly, you know, your first time, you don't really know what to expect. Um, You know, leading up to it, you do think about your mortality, or at least I did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the fact that this is risky, I could get killed. Yeah. but then you know at on the day the day of you're you know you're focused on what you're doing and you I think you've put behind most of the apprehension now you know when you're getting ready to launch on a rocket with 7 million pounds of thrust it's serious business um and, and you you definitely realize that no question oh that's amazing
2: what um how did it change you just as a as a person has it changed you i mean I imagine being away from your loved ones your your daughters um, your fiance i mean what's that like to to come back after three forty days
1: um you know I think the experience especially when you spend a lot of time in space and you have the Uh, the time to look at the earth and uh, think about your, the privilege that you have to see the planet like that and see how incredibly beautiful it is. Yet, you know, the environment looks fragile. Our atmosphere looks fragile. There's certain parts of the earth that are um, almost always covered in pollution, but you can, you know, you, I think you appreciate uh, what we have here more than, um, You know, you also recognize that there's a lot of uh, bad stuff that happens on the earth because you follow the news and it's almost always bad news. Yeah. So I think the experience, you know, having this different perspective, some people describe it as an orbital perspective, uh, makes you a more, um, you know, I think empathetic person and someone who's more kind of, uh, I don't know, in touch with humanity maybe.
2: Yeah. Now, powerful. Um, again, we're speaking with uh, Captain Scott Kelly, who uh, still holds many records or some records. Uh, the The single longest space mission, for example, uh, three hundred and forty days in space as an American astronaut. He also is the author of the book *Endurance: A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery*. I mean, you've also, Scott, had your hands on. I mean, the Hubble the Hubble Space Telescope, you were on that mission. You've been around a lot of pretty monumental things.
1: Yeah, I've had a a privileged uh, career at at NASA. I, um, you know, I just feel lucky to, you know, gotten more there when I did and had the experiences I uh, was able to have. I mean, I, having flown on the shuttle twice and the Soyuz twice and, spent 500 days on the space station and got to do a few spacewalks. I, you know, pretty much got to do, I think, you know, just about everything there is uh, to do in, you know, the time that I was there um, at NASA, which was 20 years almost. Mm.
2: And you really are kind of an ambassador. Do you feel like you're more of an ambassador to the world, um, just because being on an international space station is—did that change your view at all from just being an American astronaut?
1: I am the United Nations champion for space.
2: Hmm.
1: So yes, I am. A... <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. This is this is even bigger than something the United States <laughs> has handed you. Is it? Uh...
1: Yeah, so yeah, it's uh, you know it's it's nice, I guess you know to be able to you know for people to look. Towards me for, you know, commentary on things that we do in space and, um, you know, for people to, you know, associate associate with me, me with something that, you know, I feel very strongly about. Yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah. How did you
2: um, what advice do you give for the rest of us that uh, that aren't up there orbiting, never had the chance to orbit? What are we missing? What are we not getting just because we're so. We, where we can't see the forest for the trees.
1: Well, I think when people look up and they look at the sky, they think it's like infinite. Nah, not really. It's uh, our atmosphere lo- kind of looks like a thin film over the surface. Not oh wow! That big. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think you know I, I, those things I described. You know, this uh, orbital perspective, this uh, you know sense of uh, connection to the Earth. Um, and humanity is, is something that if, uh, you know, more people had, uh, the opportunity to find space, I think, you know, people would certainly be able to, you know, experience that as well. And, you know, I think, you know, as we, you know, continue to march forward in time, those opportunities will, um, increase. Um, I don't know what that was.
2: <laughs> you were just beamed up.
1: Yeah. I'm in my car, but uh, I'm not driving, so <laughs> that's good. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think people will have those opportunities, and I that, think that, that, that'll be great for our uh, for humanity.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think so too. What do you uh, help us understand too? Because we talk about NASA funding, we talk about the space program. How some we've we've backed off some of the funding um, uh, for some of these things. Why do we need and do we need a strong space program?
1: I I think for for a lot of reasons, Um, you know, the technology uh, we get uh, from doing stuff that seems impossible uh, is technology that we use on Earth and it improves our lives. I think we're naturally, you know, explorers. It's part of our DNA. Um, And, you know, history has shown us that You know, civilizations that stop uh, exploring and growing and expanding cease to exist. So, you know, spaceflight and space is our future. Now, I don't think we're all going to move to space. Mm. But, um, you know, having that as a destination for some of Earth's population, Mars as an example, is going to be important. And I think also the uh, inspirational value of having a space program where – you know, kids can be inspired to uh, – because they're inspired to work for NASA and maybe be an astronaut or an engineer or a scientist, um, that is something that helps our economy in the United States. It helps our country. So, you know, all those kids aren't going to go work for NASA, but if the space program uh, – Inspires kids to do better in their science and math homework. Mm. That benefits all of us.
2: Absolutely. Were, were you Were you a big science kid? Were you the mathematician? Did you know deep no, down?
1: Was, yeah, that's the other thing that's interesting about me is that I was a really bad student, <laughs> and uh, you know, spent the first like thirteen years of my education staring out the window. Uh, and it wasn't until I found a book myself, which was the uh, right stuff. By Tom Wolfe. Oh, there you go. That inspired me to, you know, work harder to become an engineer because I wanted to fly airplanes and then fly in space someday.
2: That is, isn't that amazing. So you're motivated by hearing the story and and reading the book. Um, uh, some uh, some some literary approach to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how amazing is that? And then that gets one of our, our great uh, astronauts up there. Um, and by the way, I've got to ask you, just because I love uh, kind of the relationship side of life, you, you're stuck on a, a space station. Um, what are some of your funniest memories of of and interactions? What are some of the things that stand out for you where you think, oh, that's just funny, no matter where you are?
1: You know, uh, specific... You know, I, I really... Like, sharing specifics, uh, humorous anecdotes, I would have to think about that for a while. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, you're living up there, right? Yeah. So you're living there. You're roommates. With people for a long time, yeah. So there's funny stuff that goes on, and you play, you know, jokes on one another. You know, my first flight, the, one of my crewmates hit all my underwear. <laughs>
2: well, what do you, you know? do then?
1: I just didn't care, which was really good, because <laughs> I was in space, so yeah. why, why, why would I care about my underwear? Yeah, who cares about <laughs> but, that? Which but was really good practice for spending a year in space, because then I didn't have to change my underwear very
2: often. <laughs> That's right, yeah. The man that just didn't care. Oh, how fun, though. Is um, And I guess you have two daughters. What, uh, what, what do you want them to remember, um, and how do you keep a relationship with them if you're up in space, are they? Are you allowed to communicate back home very often? How regularly do you get to talk?
1: Um, yeah, we have a, a pretty good connection to the Earth with a satellite link where you can make phone calls, and email, even video conferences on the weekend. But when you said, "What do I want them to remember?" What do yeah. I want them? To I would like them to remember everything, but uh,
2: they don't, the do they? <laughs> yeah, they just don't. Do um, Because I, you, you really put yourself in an interesting place uh, because you become a hero. You become—so many people look up to you. You've seen the world in a way that only a few have seen it. does How does that play on you just as, as a human being? Do, do you feel more of a responsibility?
1: Yes. Yeah, you know, I think having that uh, privileged uh, position in, in my career and that perspective— makes me uh, you know feel a you know responsibility to give back to the uh you know the people that sent me there
0: yeah what
1: do all you All the U.S. Uh, citizens I guess
2: so you're, you're you've you've got a book endurance a year in space a lifetime of discovery what what's next for you in your life
1: you know I'm working on a couple other books right now and um You know, after that, I do a lot of public speaking, but after that, you know, once I get through that the next year or so, I'll have to see. I'll have to figure something out.
2: Maybe a second career. Maybe. Maybe you could drive bus for the school district.
1: Maybe I'll go on the senior tour.
2: Oh, Wouldn't that be cool?
1: The problem with that is I'm not very good at golf, (laughs) but I always hear other people say that.
2: Yeah, you're going to go play the senior tour. Well, we appreciate your time. I know you're a very, very busy man, but uh, again, I want to thank you for your service and just giving hope, I think, to everybody. You don't have to be a great student at first. You do have to find some motivation, and then you got to work hard. You didn't come by this easily. You've you've done a lot of amazing things. Uh, Captain Scott Kelly, so appreciate you and your, your time. Again, the name of the book is Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Thanks, Matt. Thank appreciate you. It. Take care. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world.
1: a coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions.
6: Because
3: life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching
1: corner.
2: Play ball. Welcome back, friends. You know, how cool would that be? Just to, I'm just going to go to space. I'm going to I'm going to just go fly for 540 520 days total. Floating through space four different trips he took and um man does that not does that not keep you uh feeling young you would think. And then going to every high school that you ever visit, every school you talk to all these kids, all the energy of these people that would love to hear every story you've got. Uh, it's it's powerful. So one of the things I thought we could talk about in our Coach's Corner today is how do you stay young? What are some ways that we can, as uh, human beings, stay young in spirit and actually find uh, that that youth, that little spring in our step that sometimes we lose as we just get stuck here on Earth? Many just call it, I guess, gravity, but some, it's just depression. We fall into a funk and we're not quite... Uh, as interested in life anymore as we used to be. We're not as curious as we used to be. So, I'm going to give you some tools, some ideas to help you uh, stay young in spirit. The first principle that we will talk about is how uh, is we got to move out of the shallow end of the pool. Quit being satisfied with knowing a little about a lot of things. And instead, what if we could actually try to take our knowledge a little bit deeper? And go deeper into something, do you feel like in your own life, you have a deep, deep knowledge about anything? Have you studied a concept or an idea or an area of expertise and and maybe it 's your career, but do you have other areas as well in your life that you have uh, where you have studied deeply you know if um, if we keep pushing for deeper waters, think about it when kids are young. They, they they do play in the shallow end of the pool, right? But you may notice that they always seem to be drawn to go down to those deeper and deeper waters. Even if they're hanging onto the wall, they're drawn to the deeper water. And as adults, I feel like many of us have lost our curiosity that drives us to the deeper end of the pool. So we've got to learn to engage our curiosity a little bit more and, uh, and see if we can't find something that interests us. It could be anything, a hobby like fly fishing. It could be social media. It could be learning to run social media better. Maybe a hobby like, uh, you know, dance or some uh, religious field of study where we're going to take the topic deeper and actually become really, really uh, good at it. So good at it that maybe people would want to hear you talk about it. And uh, so that's that's just a simple idea that I think all of us could do to find more passion in our lives is move out of the shallow end of the pool. Another way I've found just in my own life is we've got to laugh a lot more. Some researchers claim that children laugh from three to four hundred times a day, while adults only laugh about 20 times a day. And uh, if you think about it, too, that means kids are getting more of the neurochemicals that you, that you get when you laugh. Um, that, uh, and adults aren't getting, uh, you know, a 10th of that. So we've got to figure out a way to laugh a lot more. And, um, one of the fu- funny things I found too about laughter is it is so contagious. If you don't believe me, go find a simple, um, video of, uh, kids like on YouTube laughing, like little babies laughing. Somebody sent me one the other day of just this cute little, you know, chunky little chubby kid Uh, baby in a diaper, just laughing. And I I just, watching it, you immediately start laughing because it is contagious. Um, Laughing burns calories, they say, 10% to 20% uh, increase in your heart rate, which means you could burn about 10 to 40 calories by simply laughing 10 to 15 minutes. Laughing is good for your relationships. Research shows that couples who use laughter and smile when discussing a touchy subject feel better Uh, in the immediacy and uh, immediately after the discussion and reports higher levels of satisfaction in their relationship. Uh, Laughter is attractive. Researchers have found that women laugh 126% more than men in cross-gender conversations, with men preferring to be the one prompting the laughter. Nothing is more attractive than when, I guess, a man makes a joke and a woman actually laughs at it. (laughs) Ha ha! So it is attractive in some ways. It's also good for your memory. You're more likely to retain things if you're learning and laughing at the same time. And it enhances immunity. It improves sleep. It uh, it eases digestion. It enhances your oxygen intake. It boosts immune function. So if you want to look younger and feel younger, you got to get 20 minutes of laughter a day. One of the great ways to do that nowadays is Netflix, YouTube. There's so many ways. Um just, you know, watching Studio C from BYU Broadcasting or find some way to get more laughter into your life. Another one of uh, the ways that I've found that you could put a little more spring in your step is break some of your own rules. A lot of us grew up with really strict, uh, stringent kind of boundaries or protocols that we were living our lives by. And, um, you know, I know people that uh, we're empty nesters, and the minute they became empty nesters, everything in the life changed for them. They decided they're going to break a bunch of rules. They can go on short vacations. They could go take extended weekends. They don't even have to dress to walk around the house anymore. They, they're breaking all their rules. Simply adding some excitement to your life by by uh, breaking some of your own rules. Now, I wouldn't break the big ones, right? But there's a lot of little things that we think we must do every day. Hey, maybe you don't need to have the bran flakes this morning. Maybe you go for something crazy. Something with sugar in it. Something, some sugar cocoa puffs. Live large. And another uh, simple one is just simply to adapt a life of awe. Awe is that feeling you feel when you look at the Grand Canyon and you're blown away. Or you see an animal in nature and you're like, and you wanna pull your car over and watch it. We just need to find more awe in our lives. So let's push our limits uh, and let's today spend a little more time looking for something that literally just makes us stop and think, wow, cool, cool stuff. Anyway, some basic rules for all of us to, uh, you know, get that young spirit back in us. It's not easy, but uh, it's definitely worth it. We got a long life to live, so we may as well do it with some hope and some spirit. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, our, our friend on the show, Kim Giles, who's the president and founder of Clarity Point Coaching, uh, she joined us on a show several months back uh, to talk to us about reactive parenting. We all do it. We all react in a way that, uh, that maybe we're not so proud of. And so I wanted to revisit that interview today. I began the interview by pointing out how overprotective some parents are.
7: Not only are we overprotective, but we freak out if they do anything wrong whatsoever. And we handle those situations so badly. I've noticed our fear, which drives most of our bad behavior, um, nobody triggers it better than our children because they make us, they trigger our fear of failure and looking bad. And they trigger our fear of loss. Uh We're going to lose them. Nobody scares us more.
0: It's so kids. true. So
7: we behave really badly towards our children and in a moment when they really need us to show up for them. Yeah. But we're focused on our own fear.
2: I had a, a, a relative come home from an LDS mission. They had been out 18 months. She's a wonderful young woman. She came home. When she left, she was very dependent on her parents. And when she now that she's been gone for six, 18 months, she's learned to be independent. But they don't necessarily want to let her go.
0: Oh, so they're they trying still to, want to put her push back her back in that box before. and she so just doesn't hard. fit.
2: And so she had to sit her parents down, which is something she never could have done before. And she's like, I am I need to grow up and I already have. I just need you to recognize yeah,
7: Now that. we need you to grow up. And, and interestingly,
2: go. they took it very well. Good. But it could have gotten ugly and reactive because they yeah. could have gone, oh, so what? They, okay, then go do it on your own. Do it on your own. And they could have gotten really mean and that's no, not going to help.
7: It isn't. Um, I really believe that life is a classroom. I talk about that a lot. We're here to learn. And I believe your children are your very best teachers. Yeah. And what we need to start seeing is our children are providing lessons for you to grow up. And every time they behave badly or have issues in their life, a matter of fact, um, my poor daughter – just this weekend she the just the one i've
2: met no okay. my
7: my 20 year old daughter just spent $500 to fix her car uh-huh and saturday night it got stolen
2: oh no way <laughs> and it's gone
7: it's gone oh, and she's no. falling apart she's so upset but it's been uh. interesting because I I really see everything that happens in my children's life as as a lesson for me, a chance for me to grow. That's great. And learn. And I think no matter what happens with your children, no matter what they do, that this is today's lesson for you. Uh huh. Um, it's and, always
2: it's always really about you. It is because you're the only one that can learn the lesson, teach the lesson, be the lesson.
7: So, I don't know if you remember, I told you about my very favorite parenting book in the world right now. It's called The Conscious Parent. It's uh-huh. a very Buddhist parenting yeah, book. Yeah. But I have to read this to you. He, he says in the book, through our children, we get orchestra seats to the complex theatrics of our own immaturity. Mm. So true. <laughs> they awaken our unresolved emotional issues, but because our children are vulnerable and powerless, we blame them for our, react- our reactivity.
2: Yeah, right. Front row seats
7: to at, our at your, immaturity. Yeah. So, we've got to notice when you react bad and flip out on your kids with anger, you know, disappointment, all of that kind of stuff. This this is your issues that are coming to the surface. So, I've I've really found four main issues that I think as parents, we got to start being aware of that come cool. up. And the first one is an attachment to our image.
2: Oh, we're so into that.
7: That <laughs> my, if my kid does something Bad, mm-hmm. I'm gonna look bad, and I think I told you before my my daughter got a tattoo, yeah, yeah, and that was my first like, what oh, what are people gonna think of? They're me? they're gonna think you're horrible, <laughs> so if we're reacting from that's that place, it's all about you and your fear of looking bad, and it's not about your child uh, and what they need from you in that moment that's so because you're concerned,
2: then it's they just see that you're just like that shallow, I mean, yeah. Because you you tried it. Well, no, I did. Because it starts there. Tattoos are the gateway drug to piercings. (laughs) And then we just go. But in reality, the whole time, they just hear you talking about your fear.
7: Yeah. It's all about you. And, you know, if you react that way, your children lose respect for you. Yeah, absolutely. They see right through it. So we've got to watch our attachment to image. Mm -hmm. Um, The second one is an attachment to perfection where we've really projected our fear of not being good enough onto them and if you've got issues with perfectionism you're going to have that about your children too and again it's really so about true. your issues um attachment to conformity and i see this in our community a lot where i feel safe when i'm the same as everybody else yeah
2: yeah do not yeah and you want your Don't kids be different you no. want
7: them to fit in the box
2: uh-huh not and it's weird cuz when one of yours just doesn't fit and doesn't like you know sleeps through the bus or the lesson or, and they're oh I have a son that's oh man what if he doesn't graduate yeah he's missing a one assignment basically but he has to go be tested on it and well what what if he doesn't what if he can't graduate what if what if what if but the whole time I'm thinking and what yeah, he's still so, he's really got a great he's an world. officer he's all these other things I'm like <laughs> why are you so worried but he's but what if he can't. It's the fear, but then it's – I didn't think of that. It's conformity. He's not – just do it like everyone else. Just do it like everyone else. We would like feel a lot else. safer
7: if you would just fit in the box like all my friends oh, and their so children. that's so sad.
2: We, we want you so predictable for our sake, not their sake. No,
7: totally about you. That's pathetic. Come on. Okay, last one yeah. is an attachment to control. And control comes from that fear of loss. And and a lot of parents really struggle with this one. They've mm. got to control everything with their children. Yeah. They can't let go and let them make their own choices because it's got to fit the picture I had in mind.
2: But you but you don't – they're agents, right? When they're done at 18, 19, 20 or whatever, they got to move on without you. But you've controlled That's them here. That's the idea. <laughs> so that might be interesting because what if I think – so if I think their success is because of me – because I've so controlled and I've been such a great parent. We have kids that play oh, musical instruments and, and everyone's like, oh, you guys are – these kids are fantastic. I'm like, mm-hmm. Matt, do you play an instrument? Not a, not a one. Yeah,
7: Matt, you really don't give any credit not, for that. But it's That's funny, them. but we want to take credit. Oh, and then we're afraid if they do something bad, then, then,
2: then it's we, oh,
0: it's, no, on, it's not my kids.
7: So we need to let go and yeah. distance. matter of fact, last night we had a Mother's Day gathering and my brother, his daughter just went to prom. And she's telling us the story that the boy's mother came with them to prom, What came to the dinner, came to the dance, Why followed them in her car the what whole What does she day. know
2: that they don't know? <laughs> you got to watch out for my son.
7: I don't know, but talk about needing to let go. Seriously. My goodness. That's we, scary. We've got to start letting them be independent. Right. And we've got to not make their life a reflection on us.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You can't get psychic – Stephen Covey always taught you can't get your psychic income from their accomplishments
7: Mm, because the minute my
2: income is attached to their accomplishments, then I am benefiting, which means when they start failing.
7: So we've got to kind of redefine our role as a parent. Really, we've got to understand that they are here on their own classroom journey with lessons to learn that have nothing to do with you. Hmm. And we've got to separate that and recognize you're here to learn your lessons, but their journey is not going to look like yours. The lessons they need to learn are totally different than the ones yeah. you needed to learn.
2: They're not yours. You don't own them.
7: No. And, and yeah, we've got to not be attached. We've I love that. We've got to that. let go and trust a little bit. So I really teach my clients the key to this is, first of all, trusting that your value isn't on the line or yeah. we're attached to them, that you have the same value no matter what Regardless, happens around right. you. And that your classroom journey is going to be perfect. It's going to be the perfect education exactly what experience you need. for you. Huge. And if we trust those, we ought to be able to let go of the attachment Two a
2: basic ideas, really. You know, it's – when I think about uh, reactive parenting, it's hey, – a. by the way, it was my book and my life could have been written on reactive parenting because I was the rea- – I am the reactive parent. If I'm not careful, so that's why I was glad we
3: listened to Kim. Hmm. Now you guys don't do that. No, I do. You're young parents. My <laughs> wife looks at me and goes, "What is up with you?" And I go, oh, he's bugging me, my my kid." <laughs> she goes, "Would you grow up?" Your kid's me. bugging you, but you are you're
4: you're not a reactive. My dad. my wife thinks I'm kind of going to war with my six year old. Really, your yeah. six year old daughter last night. So it's. My my daughter has this way of not eating dinner, but eating all of the other foods that she wants. Yeah. And so last night she just so happened to start feeling sick around dinner time. And then once dinner was over, she was up and running again. And I asked my wife, we didn't have a, a, a chance to finish this conversation, but I said, Am I a bad father if I don't believe my six year old daughter? And like before <laughs> I could finish my sentence, she's like, Yes. It's oh, okay. I guess we'll talk about this later. (laughs) But like that's one day. So she does it
2: again tomorrow or today and she does it again tomorrow. Then we know she's probably
4: going to be an actress. Well, it's just the timing of everything. It seems I'm becoming like a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Because she seems to get all the foods that she wants without having to eat her dinner. And it's like, wait a minute. But she can do it in a way that you don't even realize it until days later. Or she's just being a kid. Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know who we blame for this. Is it it our parenting? Is it our parents that did this to us? Is it just who we are or is it President
4: Trump? (laughs) Somebody needs to pay for our parenting problem. But it's crazy. I'm way too hard on her because I think about the meals that I wouldn't eat as a kid. I wouldn't eat liver and onions when my dad would put that in front of me. Oh, yeah. And yet I'm, I'm just like so insistent. That that's, she eat this meal. What that tells us is you're becoming a parent,
2: and you're becoming a wonderful parent at that.
4: Thank you. You're
2: welcome. Um, it is Parenting 101, right? It's hard. And so I think that's what's amazing. By the time your kids are 12, you I don't react nearly, I mean, half as much, not even that much. I, I hardly react to my kids anymore.
3: So you're just not paying attention?
2: The, yeah. Okay. They have to do something really crazy to make me think, what? It's just not worth it.
3: Our biggest confrontation is dinner time because oh, yeah. the yeah. kids don't want to eat. Mm-hmm. So we usually just, I'll, if they, if the boy doesn't eat, I wrap up the food, put it in the fridge. About a half hour later, I'm hungry. I bring out his dinner again. He gets mad.
4: Do you at they, least, do you at least try to make it fun and like do the foil into a swan or no, something?
3: Okay. We just put it in the fridge. <laughs> so we, we go You're through this on a process. Ship. I, I've been counseling. I look at my wife. I go, it's not worth getting mad over because it just ruins the night. Yeah. Just give him his food. We know it's things that he likes. Yeah. If he doesn't want to eat it, he'll, he'll eat learn. eventually. He'll learn. And, and then I'm the one that goes off the handle later because of something he does. And she looks at me like, what did you? What did we just talk about at dinner? I'm, mm. I know, I know. Oh, and then I it
2: just, just makes me so mad. Do you, yeah. do
3: you get the question, how many more bites? How oh, many more yeah. bites do I have to do? I just eat one bite. At, we gave him a piece of pizza last night. He's like,
2: can I just eat like one bite? You know bite? what the
3: real answer is, though,
2: is you just don't give him any more food at the end of the day. I mean, you feed no. them dinner. If they don't eat it, that's fine. Yeah. Then they just get hungry and they'll complain a million times. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, darn it. Remember, dinner was so good. Remember those dino nuggets?
3: His thing is, oh, I'm full. And he wants dessert. And, like, really? Yeah. You were so full.
5: Yeah. see?
2: <laughs> oh, it's crazy. Parenting 101, folks. We're all living it, we're all trying to make it through it. And uh, that's why we do the show to give you the tools, the information you need to be the kind of parent you want to be, to uh, lift our kids, too, to a whole new level. Uh, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We will continue the journey. More fun next hour.
0: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the
0: side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now. On BYU Radio.
5: BYU Radio.
2: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, along with Jeff and Terry. The team is gathered. And, man, have we put together a show for you. We're going to be talking about teens and all of those calculated risks that they take. Are they just major risk takers? Or is there something going on developmentally that kids need to go through in order to uh, mature? We'll be talking about it. No, they're not just out there being
4: crazy kids that are just doing stupid things. That's not their goal. So you're not talking like productive risk. You're talking well, more like reckless risk?
2: Well, a lot of parents just think kids, all they are are risk takers, and it's not actually apparently the case. So They take more risks.
3: When I was a kid and my friend was on top of the wooden fence, and he's yeah. just walking like on a, a tightrope across the top of the wooden fence, balancing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just, yeah. And then he fell off and stepped on a nail. Yeah.
2: Duh. Which, by the way, was really pretty, pretty good for him. R- really? C- compared to what could have happened.
0: Well, oh yeah, sure. Yeah,
2: see, so I mean, a nail
3: versus—he had to get the tetanus shot. Being he's impaled fine.
2: by a, a piece of wood,
3: right? But so he was taking a calculated risk. No, there. no.
2: What he was taking was a risk. Okay, but the parents think it's just stupid foolishness.
3: So did his friend, but go ahead.
2: But developmentally, he's actually starting to separate himself from his his. Uh, boundaried family. He's starting to actually grow. Now, it seems crazy, but we'll talk to an expert that's going to say some of that craziness is essential, and we have to let kids be a little bit more risk-taking. Otherwise, you will impede their ability going forward to actually venture out into the world.
3: See, and I thought he was demonstrating the concept of survival of the fittest. Yeah, where he makes a dumb decision, falls off the fence, and the rest of us go on with our
4: lives. I'm guessing some of these deeper thoughts were not in his mind when he was up on that. Oh no, no,
2: no! But every teenager will venture out. In fact, that's why. Think about it. If you had to choose to leave what you have now and risk going to like travel by foot. 1,000 miles to maybe have a better life, better city, better family, better money, mm. better everything, better chance to find a wife. Think about that. You wouldn't dare do it as an older person because you've got too much established. Mm-hmm. But teens would. And because they would, that's what actually – they're wired to go out and start testing the world. And if we're not careful as parents, we will like, we'll harm their ability to do that. Hmm. So we'll be talking about risky teens and their lives up next. But before we get that, let's get to a, one of our risky adults. Whoa. Wow. Sorry, Terry South. Yeah. What's uh, going on with the headlines? A
3: woman died after being struck by an Uber self-driving vehicle in Arizona, the first known death of a pedestrian struck by an autonomous vehicle on public roads. The New York oh. Times reported on Monday. The statement from Tempe police said the vehicle was, an autonomous, was in autonomous mode with a human safety driver behind the wheel. Hold on, they're yeah, human safety. They call sa-
2: him a human safety driver. Just
3: the person w- we're sitting We're talking
2: there. a person sitting behind the wheel.
3: Right. So says, when it hit the woman who was crossing the street outside of a crosswalk. So the woman was jaywalking. And then the car hit her. It was quite a ways back from the intersection. Yeah. So maybe there was some confusion in the software yeah, as to was an, what was going was on.
2: not in the algorithm.
3: Officials say the accident occurred overnight. So it was a night, low visibility, and the woman uh, had not been publicly identified. Uber said in a statement that they are fully cooperating with local authorities and has suspended uh, suspended their self-driving car test in Tempe, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, and Toronto. According to Wired.com, under Arizona law, self-driving vehicles don't need a special permit to operate. A standard vehicle registration is sufficient. Furthermore, operators aren't required to share information with the authorities. This has been a drawing uh, tech companies who want to roll out driverless taxi services to Arizona because there's very little regulation as to what they can and can't do. So they like it there. We'll see Uh, see if that continues. The White House and congressional Democrats traded immigration offers uh, futilely over the weekend, according to three sources familiar with the talks, leaving little chance of an immediate deal to protect dreamers. The White House on Sunday made an 11th hour push to include billions of dollars in border wall funding in a massive congressional spending bill due this week, but clashed with congressional Democrats over how far to go in protecting young immigrants that face deportations. The White House official asked Democrats to approve $25 billion for President Trump's border wall in exchange for extending the Deferred Action Childhood Arrivals program through the fall of 2020. That would give Trump his full wall funding request in the must-pass spending bill and give him leverage over the DACA program heading into his 2020 reelection campaign. But Democrats balked, uh, demanding instead that the White House provide a pathway to citizenship for the 1.8 million young immigrants eligible under the DACA program. So they're trying to get DACA involved and the wall involved in the th- funding program that has yeah. to be signed by Friday and there's Smart. a storm coming in. And, and
2: some are saying they'll get the Mueller investigation. like you can't fire Mueller in the bill as well. Yeah, let's no. throw everything in that bill. The kitchen sink is not so that so. we can't get anything passed. <laughs>
3: Brilliant. Speaking of that storm, forecasters said today they upped their winter storm warning in New York. uh, New York City, as two systems appear to combine now to threaten to drop more than a foot of snow on the second day of spring, no less. As much as 18 inches expected in Philadelphia... With uh, more predicted in Washington, D.C., Boston, and Connecticut. The National Weather Service says the sleet will begin late Tuesday, but the heaviest snow will come Wednesday afternoon along with yet another round of high winds, coastal flooding, even more power outages. It'll be the fourth nor'easter to hit the region in less than a month. Oh, wow. Do you know what the Rocky Mountains would do to have that snow? It'd be great. They would love it. 60 degrees Instead, here
2: today. let's put it in philadelphia
3: <laughs> tech jobs uh, this is the final one tech jobs dominated indeed.com's 2017 list of the best careers in the u.s but this year other industries are jumping into some of the top spots of the top 25 jobs 16 are on there that didn't uh, didn't appear on the list last year. So the 16 new jobs into the top 25 jobs in America. Whoa. Construction in particular is having a moment. Some construction roles jumped into the top 25 for the first time, while others saw their placement on the list uh, rocket higher in 2018. This uh, commercial project manager, for example, jumped from number 19 last year to the top spot this year on the list. Wow. Now, Fortune Magazine very helpfully explains that commercial project managers are responsible for developing and overseeing commercial projects. Yeah. Thank which you. kind of is explained in the name. But they <laughs> seems <laughs> put self-explanatory. That in there anyway. The position saw 277% growth in job postings between 2014 and 2017. Wow. So commercial Job? What is it? Commercial project managers. It's seems a big like, deal. It seems
2: like a gig. Yeah. Now, he,
3: here are the other jobs on, on here. You have, uh, cr- of course, commercial project manager. You have full stack developer. That's I it. think
2: that was Jeff had that job. That's once. A,
3: that's, that's from, the cup stacking. Yeah, I believe. He was yeah, really good. It's at that a computer job. Uh, computer vision engineer. Oh please. Uh, machine learning engineer. Okay. Pre construction manager. Construction superintendent. Optometrist. Post-construction manager. Data scientist, chief estimator. Oh, wow. I could do that job. Yeah. And development operations engineer.
4: Now, the only thing that would make this better is if you were doing optometry while doing construction. Mm. That would be a high-paying job.
2: Well, that will happen someday. Someday. Uh, You know what they need is um, bodyguard dog walkers. There you go. Did you know who Myesha Tate is? Myesha Tate? No. She's a mixed martial arts fighter, seven and a half months pregnant. Did you hear about this story? No, what'd she do? She was walking her cute little dog, Scooter, around the neighborhood, pregnant, and another dog attacked her. Hmm. So, A, don't attack a mixed martial arts expert. So when this dog jumped over to, to basically get on the neck of her little pup, Maisha, pregnant, jumps down and tackles the dog and, like... Throws it for a throw that it's never experienced. And uh, luckily, but she got torn up and then saved her dog, picked her dog up. And the other dog eventually uh, went away. But she was scraped up. And then as she had time to think about it, she started feeling guilty about potentially endangering her baby. And anyway, but she's like, you know, what do you do? Just just reacting, just reacting. But everyone's fine. Maisha's fine. The baby's fine. And Scooter, the puppy's fine. All is well. <laughs> Scary times, folks. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about teens and their calculated risks with an expert. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you grow healthier, happier families. Welcome back, friends. You know, everyone, every one of us, we do risky things at times, you know, things that maybe weren't thought out uh, to the degree that maybe we should have. But parents tend to think that their teenage kids are much bigger risk takers and they need to be more cautious. Uh, but is that true? Are they just out to, to just do crazy things? Are they out to, to maybe not quite use their brain as much as they, they should be. Well, we've, we've got an expert on the subject. Jessica Flannery joining us. She's a graduate student in psychology program at Oregon and uh, has written an article that talks about the method of madness that is a teenager's decision-making process, and we wanted to bring that to you to help us all figure out what's going on in the minds of our teenagers. Jessica, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. our teenagers... Just bad decision makers, or or are they prone to more risky behavior? What's really going on that makes them seem like they're they're taking such big risks?
8: Yeah, it's a great question, and I think most um, parents have that question too. So, I think traditionally scientists used to think that science, uh, that teens were more risky because of kind of how their brain was developing. So regions involved in planning and self-control weren't as developed while, you know, regions involved in risk and reward were kind of heightened um, in these regions, which led to this kind of wired for risk, couldn't control themselves narrative um, about adolescence. And it's definitely a time where there are more risks being taken. But what we really wanted to point out um, is that it's not just about taking risks for risk's sake, but it's actually towards their developmental goal or their tasks at hand.
2: What do you mean by that? It's so they're not just trying to be risky. It's it's really about them developing, and they have goals that they need to to grow into developmentally.
8: Yeah, exactly. So their main goals as adolescents aren't the same as you know adults, as the same as toddlers. So their goal is to really learn and explore about in the environment and about themselves. So for the first time, really in their developmental history, they're getting more independence that's a time where they're starting to go into this next role of being an adult with the goal of being independent and so with that take some risks. so it's um, exploring new environments inherently means you don't know what's going to happen there um, for example you know you could always go to the same uh, market that you always go to but then you'll never know you know new opportunities that could be around the corner or you know different things that could be a better opportunity for you.
2: Interesting. So it really isn't about risk-taking, it's about independence-making.
8: Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a really big part of it. It's um, learning about who they are um, just within themselves, too. So it's a period where they're kind of figuring out who they are, trying on different selves, but can mean, you know, exploring and trying on, you know, just as you would with fashion, for example, you might pick out. Hat where you're trying to, you know, do I wear the baseball hat? Do I wear it backward? Do I wear it to the side? Maybe I try the cowboy hat on. Um, And ultimately, you'll pick what feels best for you, like what feels most like you. Hmm. And teens are doing the same kind of thing, but with their whole identity.
2: That is so interesting, too. I mean, I have a son right now that is just loving the idea of growing his hair out and just (laughs) thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. And every time I look at him, I'm like, oh, "Come on, are we not ready to do that yet? Let's should we not cut that hair yet?" But really, what you're saying is, it's he's just trying to figure out himself, try new things, explore, and and I guess our job as parents is to make that safe.
8: Yeah, and it is a really tricky period for parents, you know, and infancy and, you know, prenatally there's all these books on what to expect and even sometimes by the week, on this week you should expect this to happen and then all of a sudden adolescents come and there's no, there's not as many books, I guess, to really tell you what to expect and it looks so different teen to teen so it can be a scary job for parents too to figure out how much, you know, control do I let go of, how much do I rein in, so it's a whole new avenue of figuring out what's too much control, what's enough to give away.
1: Is it
2: is there, and I guess the overall benefit of some of this riskier behavior, though, is that that they're they're learning, they're growing. I mean, I guess our assumption as parents is that they're not learning, or they they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't go climb on the roof if they were learning. But um, but they're really climbing on the roof, roof and sitting up on the roof, or doing risky things to to be independent. Um, do do they? They do, they're doing this naturally. Do do they actually learn as they're doing this? Confirm for us as parents that that this is a learning process.
8: Yeah, and it's a yeah, it's a great question to kind of think about. Um, but I think it's helpful to think of the lens that you're thinking through. So for a lot of these decisions, we think: Would we do this as an adult? Is this an alerting opportunity that we would take? And a lot of the times the answer is no, we wouldn't choose to learn that way. And so we don't understand why they would choose to do it that way. Um, but they have different priorities and goals that they're going toward, that actually the learning that they're doing is in service of that. So you can even think about maybe sneaking out, for example. Um, you know, that there's a lot of risk there. Parents might think of how they're not learning or thinking about the future of those consequences, that if they get caught or something really bad happened, for a teen, though, what they might be thinking is they're actually planning quite a bit of how to get out of the house without the parent knowing, and thinking in the future, if I didn't do this, what would this mean for my peer relationships? So there is some thought and planning involved and learning about what's going to happen, but their goals are different, so they're kind of weighing different. Uh, risks and benefits than what an adult would be doing.
2: Are there goals in their mind? Are they are they overt goals that they actually recognize in their mind, or are these just developmental like stages that they're going through, and the goal is kind of subconscious?
8: Yeah, I would say that probably varies period or adolescent to adolescent, and that's a a good thing to think about too. That there's just a lot of individual differences between teens. So when we think of the risky teen, um, it's not all teens are out doing crazy things and they're all, you know, ending up incarcerated. Actually, most of us make it out of teens uh, years quite fine and we end up into adulthood. Um, So they are able to make these decisions and kind of get through it.
2: Yeah. Do you, I mean, parents, like you said, we use our filter and first there's, we know first our kids are sneaking out. We know someday they will be drug addicts and then they'll be in prison. Um, that's kind of where our mind naturally goes. But, but overall you're saying that these, these kids really are just, they're just doing what's developmentally normal. And we as teenagers would have done similar things just in our own world.
8: Yeah. Exactly. So taking risk doesn't mean that, you know, your team's going to end up in prison or something like that. Um, And of course, there's different levels of risk. And so the risk that we're talking about isn't the really extreme risks that are involved in mortality um, rates or um, greater incarceration rates. So just this idea that kind of normalizing that risk taking is in fact something that is occurring and isn't most likely going to end up for the most part for most teens down this really negative trajectory path
2: for them. What can we do as parents to facilitate um, healthy risk-taking and, and independence-making?
8: Such a great question. And it's a hard one because each teen is so different. And so I think the best thing that t- uh, parents have on their side is they know their individual teen the best. Um, and so with research, we kind of at this point are really looking at these averages. But what we also know is there's no such thing as the typical teen Um, There's so much difference teen to teen. So beyond just age, understanding a little bit of what your teen is going through. So and actually a good um, analogy to kind of think about is if, um, you know, you're learning the high beam and there's a spotter there. And the goal is to, you know, eventually perform and be able to do tricks and perform and, you know, get rated on being on the high beam. So when you're learning, you have the spotter right underneath you and they're close and they're catching every fall and eventually they move away and the goal is to have them on the sidelines. But sometimes, and if you think of the parent as kind of that spotter for the kid underneath the high beam, they might move away too quickly and the kid falls. So there's going to be some tumbles along the way. But eventually the goal is you know, they can go on the sideline and they can watch from a distance. So sometimes it involves you know, giving the kid the car keys with knowing this could be an accident, but eventually they need to drive on their own. So the parent also has to take some risk, too, of gauging when their kid is ready for that next level Um, of independence.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, we're speaking with Jessica Flannery, who is a graduate student in the clinical psychology program at the University of Oregon. Her her, uh, research interests broadly focus on how early adverse experiences influence the neuroendocrine pathways and functions. Um, And Jessica, one of the things that uh, I, I wanted to ask you, because I'm sure you'd have some incredible insight for adults as parents, but also for the teens. If you were to speak to a group of teens, what advice would you give teens on on their developmental process of, of becoming independent and risk-taking? What would you be talking to the teens about?
8: Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of it would be to also give themselves some slack. I I think teens really do know that they get a bad rap from the public, that they just can't control themselves, but, you know, give them a little bit of insight of, yeah, you know, things, some things might be a little bit harder for you. There are differences in how they are thinking about things, but that's not a bad thing. So I think I would just give some reassurance that, you know, they're figuring it out and they're going to be okay and that it is normal to be exploring and not sure what's going on. Um, and to, yeah, give that freedom to explore a little bit.
2: Because it really is – I mean it, I, I remember doing riskier things that and, – and like I just t- – talking to my son um, that's a senior in high school, the stuff he does, it, as a parent, I'm like, oh, yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> you, you can't do that. And he's like, I know. That's why I didn't tell you till now. Um, but it, it really is – it's kind of a rite of passage. But to know that developmentally their brains are stretching and that a lot of this is very healthy, it's powerful. I guess the the great thing would be is if we could make it safe enough for our kids to open up to us, to talk about it, um, so we can be that spotter for them.
8: Yeah, and I think at least my opinion for that would be really that one of the best ways parents could do that is – Instead of, you know, the more we can think about what is their function of that behavior, so they're not just, if we think they're doing this to be risky, then we might get more easily mad at them for their behavior and not understand. Um, But instead of getting mad, thinking, why were they doing this? How is this helping their goal of learning and exploring their environment um, and going towards the things that they really care about at this time in their life? And so that understanding, I think, is a really key beginning step for you know, teens to feel comfortable talking to their parents about this.
2: Yeah, is there, are there things to watch out for that tell us, okay, this risk is now we're just being stupid. Now it's just now you're really crossing a line. How do we how do we help t- to draw the boundary? I mean, obviously, anything that deals with mortality. Um, but are there other are there other signs that we should watch for that is a boundary?
8: It's a very tricky question. Um, Because really, within culture, that varies quite a bit. So there's cultural differences in what things are acceptable. There's differences within the U.S., even of what people think is different. So cultures within the U.S. And then there's just times within the U.S. So what things are appropriate or norms within society, what things we let teens do changes a lot there. So there's a lot of other variables that kind of tell us what is okay or not. So besides those really extreme ones where we're more at the mortality level, it's, it is really tricky because there's cultural differences that I wouldn't want to impose my own views on any one parent for that.
2: Yeah. What? What? Um, g- give us an example, though, of uh, like a cultural view.
8: So in some cultures, uh, adolescents play a larger role in the home during adolescence. So, Generally, adolescence is kind of thought of as this time where there's this, more broadly speaking, this reorientation towards peers. So they're caring more about what their peers are thinking than what their parents are thinking. But that's not always the case. And parents still play a really big role in adolescence, too, and how they're developing. And in some cultures, that plays an even larger role. So in adolescence, teens are gaining more responsibilities within the home Um, And so that would play a large role in what types of risks that they're taking and also their social identity and how they Mm. perceive themselves.
2: That's so true, isn't it? And yeah, you you can't you can't say what's right or what's wrong for any uh, one person. I mean, some people, they're not out doing they're not out toilet papering houses and egging people. They're actually, you know, taking the night shift at home, making dinner for their brothers and sisters because mom and dad have to work.
8: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a super important point to really drive home is that there's so much individual difference um, from teen to teen. So we don't just have this one team that's this big risk taker. And for the most part, we all make it out okay.
2: Yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, that is such really great news. We're going to make out, make it out. This developmentally is normal. Foster, do what we can to foster their independence and help our kids be as healthy as they can uh, and, and be there as as kind of a spotter that can help. Uh, help them minimize as much risk as possible. Is there anything else, Jessica? I always kind of ask for the one thing. What's the one thing that um, overall we should remember about our kids as parents uh, th- as they go through the teenage years that would make the biggest difference, I think, for us and for them?
8: Hmm. I think the big thing that I would say would be really important is to remember that they aren't an adult. Um, And so we shouldn't be expecting them to act like an adult. Um, I think that can be one of the hardest things is they start to look like an adult more than in the past, and sometimes they are acting like an adult. So those lines get really blurry, but to really just remember they're not supposed to act like an adult right now. Um, they have another developmental task at hand, and that's super important. So to not get mad at them when they're not yeah. <laughs> they're not being the adult yet.
2: That's such great advice. Such great advice, Jessica Flannery. Thank you so much for your insight on our teenagers and their risk taking behaviors. They uh, they're just they're they're normal. And the other great news is it sounds like folks they're going to come out. They'll be okay. Uh, They are seeking to be independent and grow some of their independence, which is essential at that stage of their life. We will continue the discussion straight ahead to a little Coach's Corner for you. This is the Matt Townsend
3: Show. What's the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner.
0: Lay ball.
2: Lay ball. Hey, what... uh, What do you wish your parents had done for you as a teenager? I mean, mine would say, well, we should have gone to Hawaii a lot more. But what do you wish they had brought for you? What do you wish they had created for you? And um, maybe that's where we should begin with our kids is starting to figure out what they need from us. And every kid and every child, every adolescent is so different, aren't they? Some need a, a lot, I think, a lot of structure. Some need uh, and a lot of maybe coaching. Others need, it seems like less coaching, but they just need support. They need you to be a cheerleader for them. Um, others might need maybe less cheerleading and even maybe more just, you know, investment, financial and, uh, and time and energy investment. Everybody needs something different, but uh, one of the – some of the basic things that we know the kids need more than anything is um, they, they need to figure out somehow how we can – how they can become more resilient. A lot of kids, I believe, are terrified about the world. They they don't know how they're going to fit in. They don't know what kind of career they're going to have. So I think initiating some of those conversations with them when they're as they're as they're getting into teenage years um, would be a very powerful thing. I think another thing that would be really important that our children learn today uh, would simply be this the idea of how to work, how to actually put their head down and solve a problem and and figure out ways to grow and to develop and to learn to become a healthy a healthy adult. Uh I have a son-in-law who was raised in a family that just they just work. Period. And there's no way around it. You just you just work. Um and so what a powerful lesson he has in his life because of how his father and mother set him up by by just, you know, you can figure anything out if you're willing to create uh, and invest your own time and your own energy. And work another thing I think we could teach our kids um, on this growth to life is the power of character that everybody has a journey to make and everybody has something to offer and and their job, their responsibility is to go find what they are to bring to this world and they have a responsibility to identify what their purpose is their mission is and they're the only one that can bring it and they have a very unique responsibility as an agent as a as a being on this earth to identify what that's going to be and to start owning or taking stewardship of it so i would make sure with our kids that we are helping them understand what their purpose is and at first it could be generic purpose right to learn to grow to develop but then there will become a specific purpose i think that um eventually appears for each and every one of us and you as an adult might want to ask yourself do you know what your purpose is here on this great big ball of mud because if you don't um then what are you trying to tell your kid to do <laughs> how are you motivating your child if you're not sure um what they are supposed to be doing so make sure you've got yours figured out a little bit and 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 help them with that. Another thing that I think every child uh, should have to learn to do, and should learn to do, is to learn to do hard things. Um, There's nothing more real about being an adult than you sometimes have to do things you just don't want to do, because no one else will do it. I mean, how many times have you had one of your children come home and you know bleeding and like, uh oh, I fell on the fence and. Now we need to go get stitches, and then you're spending the entire night getting stitches. It's just hard stuff. And if we could teach our kids that, hey, it's not about what you feel like doing. It's not about you know, what mood you're in. We're going to do hard things, and we're, that's part of that work ethic I was talking about earlier. But um, that is something that would actually generate more and more character in our children if they had to learn how to do the um, – the the hard things. Another interesting thing is being vulnerable. One of the lessons that I'm seeing more and more come into my office are a lot of young adults that don't they don't know how to be vulnerable with other people. They literally don't want to tear down their walls. And they have walls that may have come just because of how we parented them or we didn't parent them. It might simply be because, you know, they're suffering from their parents' breakup, their parents' divorce. It might be suffering from abuse or other issues that happened in their childhood, but they don't know how to be vulnerable. And so if we could help our kids with, with the ability to make it safe for them to apologize, make it safe for them to make mistakes, I think our children should be um, taught that mistakes are the key to life and we need to make mistakes. That's, that's how this works. And so um, what a powerful thing if, if, you could, if you could somehow exercise their character to learn to be vulnerable in their, in their relationships with others to admit quickly their mistakes instead of you know, conjuring more stories up. Um anyway, another interesting idea that uh I found that really strengthens character is the ability to to actually be silent. You don't always have to say what you're thinking. You don't always have to create more noise and more um more just just loud behavior and and ignorant talk. Sometimes it's best to just learn to hold your tongue, right? And again, these are all harder things to teach our kids because they might be a little reactive, but the older they get, these are things we should easily be able to, to model for them. And I would always suggest we start first um, with, our own, with our own activity, our own behavior, instead of assuming that these are just things that our kids should do. And uh, one other thing that we might want to be teaching our children is that, um, that everyone is equal. Every other human being on this earth is equal to them in power and opportunity to become something. They may not be equal in reality because of how they were born. We, not everybody on this earth today has equal rights still. We say they do, but you know, some people don't even know that they have rights. Some people don't even know that they can go to school. They can do other things. They don't see that because it's not a reality of how they live and where they live but we as adults can help our kids see that how blessed they really are to where they live and and the life they have and figure out how that they can lift other people to um to higher higher life and a higher place in their life. So if we could teach more equality, we might actually see results of more equality later in life as as we go through that. So lots of stuff we could be teaching our kids and again, we don't have to be perfect at it. We just have to be, I think, committed to it and trying a little bit more today to be a little bit better with our kids today. So what's, here's the question. What's the most important thing that you need to, to kind of integrate into your parenting today? What's something you can start doing with your children today? What's one of these areas that we talked about, whether it's equality or silence Uh, Learning to keep their tongue, learning to uh, be vulnerable with others, learning to do hard things, uh, recognizing their own journey. What's something that you know you need to implement more with your children today and even implement more in your own personal life today so that you can have and be this great change that we need? Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. We're all on the journey together. None of, us have, uh, none of us are always going to be in the pole position. That, that role is going to rotate. But uh, we can learn together. We can lift the rest of the world together if we just share what we're learning. That's why we do the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, Julie Nelson is, uh, has a master's degree in marriage and family and human development and is a contributor here on The Matt Townsend Show. She teaches classes such as Applied Parenting and Marriage and Relationship Skills at Utah Valley University, also is the author of the book Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger. And a few months back, we talked about the importance of fathers in early development of their children, and we wanted to replay and revisit that interview
6: from the very beginning with brain development. And, you know, it's it's kind of hands-off for many dads. They kind of like to say, yeah. okay, that's mom's domain. And from the very beginning, she's the one spending all the time with the kid, getting up in the middle of the night and doing the feeding. And he just kind of waits till they're like, what, eight, and he can throw balls with them. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. yeah.
2: Even younger.
6: <laughs> you could th- you could
2: wrestle with them when they're three, yeah, two. Yeah,
6: yeah. Um, so very beginning, we want to start that bonding so that we can get into the wrestling and feel like I can be a part of their life from the very beginning.
2: Yeah, it, it seems like moms don't always like how we inject ourselves into the child's life.
6: Yeah, see, there's, this, there's this dichotomy where the f- fathers overstimulate and the moms want to calm down. Yeah. The fathers do the rough play. The moms do the cuddling. Usually and- dads
2: end up accidentally hurting their kids more.
6: <laughs> like my my husband, I share this with my students at the university. We talk about this, the importance of dad and play. What happens when you put a kid in a room with a bunch of adults and you hand a, a nine month old to uh, off to a, a, a dad in the room yeah. or, you know, just a, a male in the room? What does he do? Throws them up in the air. Yeah, we start tossing. Yeah, like a football. Because
2: we love them. That's
6: right. That's how we show we love them. And my husband, he, um, he. I don't know how old he was. A baby. And his his father had just returned from a tour of duty in Vietnam. hadn't seen him for like six months or, or a year or <laughs> something like that, you know. So he comes home. Dad's not been there for year. Everyone's so excited. And um, so he comes to the door, picks up my husband, who's a ch- young child at the time, throws him up in the air a little too high.
0: Oh no! Gashes
6: his forehead on the chandelier, and they have to go to the emergency <laughs> So he's got this scar on his forehead for the rest of his life.
0: <laughs> but no, they do. They Thanks, do. Dad. Yeah,
6: yeah. But research has shown that the the fathers from the very beginning who are more involved from the Family Medical and Medical Leave Act um, that paternal leave really does play a part in the well-being not only of the, of the company... It does benefit yeah, the, company the company and of our economy, but the, the children themselves and the family life, yeah. um, they find research that fathers are more involved in playing with their kids as well as their care, and the children flourished academically. Hmm. Um, so I think this, this ingredient that the fathers bring into um, the dynamics of the home where they do have more of this uh, physical play, yeah. and we're going to talk more about benefits of that.
2: Because the it, it also just seems like, if he bonds with his kids he's more predictable he's safer he'll be around longer it's mm-hmm. he's a part of it if he if he just kind of goes back to work He's not going to be as bonded.
6: Yeah. Well, anything you invest in and yeah. anytime you um, have that that time from the very beginning, then you feel like I am an actor in this person's um, life and I need to be there and I have a, a, a contribution that's unique to what the mother gives and not that the mother can't do physical play as well and the fathers can't be nurturers, but they each can bring their own and, and research has shown that fathers just tend to, as one research says, tend to engage in more physical, stimulating and unpredictable play than mothers do. Mm-hmm. Um, this same research said that they what they did was rats. Okay, we always we always try everything with rats first, of course. right? Of course. <laughs>
4: well, they're great fathers too.
6: <laughs> they are, and um, if we damage their brains, it's okay, That's right?
4: right. Yeah.
0: But
6: what happened was is they were they raised these rats in stimulating environments with complex toys and social context and acrobatic challenges, so more physical play. Hmm. And these rats outperformed rats that were reared in isolation. The rats had more synapses per neuron, more dendritic branching, and increased capillary flow. The father Father's orientation towards the physical play creates a stimulating environment that is similar to that that was experienced by the high-performing rats. Interesting. Um, so you have the more blood flow, you have more of that complex. Yeah. You know the 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 uh, um, dendritic.
2: So so it's maybe less communicative, but it's more.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: But it, it creates it creates kind of a physiological benefit.
6: Yes, and there's also this thing called the BDNF. Um, which increases the neuron growth in the parts of the brain when you have more of that stimulation. Mm. It's responsible for memory and logic and higher learning skills, which is necessary for academic success for those first six years of their life, five years. yeah. You are, you are stimulating the, the brain to do better, to perform better in school. So fathers play that part. So when mothers see, get a little anxious because yeah. dad's doing a little bit too much Why of this you, rough, yeah, yeah. it really is good as long as it's safe. Yeah. But it's good. And it's, if, okay, if they fall down and get, you know, owie, that's right. fine too yeah, um, because they learn one of the things that happens is is that is that children learn that unpredictability is part of life yeah and so when you have these um give and takes and things are not always scripted like we're going to play a you know a uno or whatever yeah. and it's not just here are the rules roughhousing doesn't really always have rules no. you just kind of like tumble and up. wrestle and you pl- make it up and not everything goes the way you want it to and so you learn with socio-emotional development yeah. that um you can have um Unpredictability in your life, you can learn to read um, the difference between play and aggression when it goes too far, you bet. which you, happens a lot. Which happens where you play and then it escalates, and then, and then the kids cry, and, then, <laughs> and dad, dad has to go, "Hey, let's bring it yeah. down." And dad's the one that's kind of helping the child learn when it's going too far. That's
2: that emotional management. Mm-hmm.
6: Emotional social emotional intelligence helps children to read and interpret social cues. Yeah. That's what you're doing with fathers is you're learning how to when someone's crossed the line, mm-hmm. when we need to pull it back. Um, it also um, has been linked with search, research to Control violent impulses later in life because you know the difference. Yeah, I um, mean you've been taught from from very young, so um you. Also, fathers, you know, moms do the cuddling. They do the kissing of the boo-boos. Yeah. But dads have more of a tendency when things get a little bit more out of control. They distract their kids from the pain. Maybe they got themselves hurt. They do some humor. Let's go do something else. Yeah. Now we distract them. Take their mind so, off. Take their <laughs> mind off. So they learn how to cope when they're out in the world and they need to um, be involved with some maybe some painful situations. It's interesting because
2: you just uh, – you think, oh, yeah. We think everyone's replaceable. But you may not be, because you naturally may be more of a an empathic person, but may not try to overstimulate your kid, which a dad might tease, tease, tease. Oh, about to cry, calm, calm, calm. Absolutely. Oh, make him cry. Oh, make him calm. Make. Mm-hmm. Oh, and these. It's an interesting benefit,
6: mm-hmm.
2: and and it seems like an extreme to your partner, because they're like, oh, why do you always stimulate the kids at nine o'clock at night? <laughs> We're trying to get them to go to bed. Absolutely. That was Julie Nelson. Julie K. Nelson, we call her the bomb mom. And again, uh, she wrote the book, uh, Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger, which provides a lot of great parenting tips on the show. Um, but, uh, Jeffrey, see, so that's good news for you, Jeff. You are an essential, important role to the development of your children. I feel needed. You are needed. <laughs> and you need to wrestle with your kids more. You need to. You need to have fun with them. You need to stimulate them. You help them understand how to not overreact to life.
4: I'm trying to not just focus on the fun because I think there's a danger in that, too, which I'm finding out. Yeah, My wife and I recently came to the realization that I think we spoil our kids. Yeah. So I'm trying to back off a little bit, be a little more firm, but also... Find more productive ways to spend time with them. Like, let's read this book together. Exactly. But,
2: and, and make sure you make sure you uh, teach them to – I mean, make sure you stimulate them a little late sure. at night so, so that they have to learn to calm down. Yeah. They
4: have to learn to relax. But then also taking things like chores and making them not seem like they're so much like chores. Yeah. So, for instance, the other day, my uh, six-year-old, for part of her homework, had to count to 100. Oh okay? wow! Yeah, um, and so and I thought instead of just having her count to a hundred, why don't I go hide while she's counting to a hundred, and then after a hundred she comes and looks for me? How fun! So we combined it with hide and seek. But what if she didn't finish? <laughs> <laughs> there was there were a few pauses, but she she picked it up and and did an awesome job. That's pretty cool. See, you're a good father. That's a great sign that you're gonna you're it's
2: going to work. I'm gonna make it. And the mere fact that your wife is home. And helping the kids every day. Yeah. And helping them understand how dad's got some issues. Mm-hmm. Thank heavens for moms that uh, walk the kids through our crazy little uh, our crazy little lives. That's it, folks. Hour number two. It's in the can. Remember, uh, we're doing what we can to give you the tools you need to pick up your game and be the good in the world. We'll continue the journey next hour. More fun. This is the Matt Townsend Show.